Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Hello, retro movie lovers, and welcome back to the movie graveyard. I hope you all survived that spooky Halloween we had this year. Your reward for living is now November. Time for elections. <laughs> welcome. I was going to say, I hope they survive the election more than yeah. Halloween. There's going to be mass riots at the elections, yeah. But uh, we're glad. You guys probably have a little bit of a Halloween uh, hangover. I think we all do, all of us who celebrate it. I, I, I was talking to somebody last night, Trev, and I proposed this. I was like, you can't really gather together, supposedly. You're not supposed to for Thanksgiving because of COVID. Same with Christmas gatherings. How about we cancel Thanksgiving Christmas and just extend Halloween to the end of the year? That's what I'm for, man. That'd be awesome. Then again, I've been advocating that every year with COVID or not. So Exactly. So yeah, so we thought after covering all these uh, you know frightful flicks, we give you a little bit of a break. You never know; there could be some uh, some uh, freaky uh, surprises before the end is up. But uh, we wanted to take a little bit of a break of the horror, although we do have a tiny dose of horror within this episode as well. But uh, Trev, why don't you uh, explain to the listeners what we're doing here tonight? Yeah, so this is another um, idea we kind of cooked up, in that uh, you know every once in a while I like to shine a light on either you know like um a franchise that doesn't get enough love or a subgenre that doesn't get enough love or actors that don't get enough love and there's certain 80s icons who i think you know there's certain there's 80s icons that everyone still knows and then there's other 80s icons who only mean something to people who were alive at that time and they had like their moment and then they've kind of faded away and and we'll talk about that tonight with uh with the actress i really wanted to kind of take a look at because um, she meant a lot of me, a lot to me when I was young. I go, we'll talk about how you feel about it. Definitely one of my early childhood crushes, and a series of films that I really enjoy. And that's taking a look at the uh, brief but impactful film, uh, filmography of Lucinda Dickey. That's right. Because some stars, they don't uh, burn for very long, but when they do, no. they burn bright. And she was one. That's of right. Them. Yep. So, just a little bit of background, and jump in if you have more detailed information than what I found trev but so i guess we should really notice that lucinda dickey uh really uh what didn't come through the traditional actress route which is surprising considering somebody who had the lead in three movies in a row um she basically came back with the come through with the uh background in in uh, dance and gymnastics mm-hmm. right trev yeah yeah she moved to los angeles to primarily become a dancer um she'd won a dance scholarship and then she kind of, you know, packed up. She was living in Kansas, I believe. Uh, it's really like the old school kind of story, right? Small town girl moves to L.A. to become a dancer. Then I think she just saw like some movies and was like, maybe I could try that. Went for some auditions. And then, of course, you, you mentioned how she kind of goes right into lead roles. I don't know how that maybe it says a little bit for her talent. I think it says more for the company we'll be talking about <laughs> primarily yeah. tonight. We, we should be saying that we're, we're mostly covering some real canon classics tonight. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so so basically, and we're going to cover these films not necessarily in the order that they came out because they all pretty much came out at the same time. Uh, we're going to kind of break it through with um, how like the order they were shot in. And if you were to watch these movies, like uh, I don't know about you, Trev, but I did this for this little rewatch. For the most part, I watched these when I found out the order that she made them in, and I kind of saw like a progression in her uh, performances for sure. Um, 
Which is funny because you're still only talking about a span of like months because yeah. these were all filmed very quickly. Like I, nine when I, when, <laughs> yeah, when we proposed this episode, I didn't realize these all came out the same year. So you and I did an episode before about Dennis Hopper in 1986, talking about how that's like one of the best years an actor's ever had. But hey, let's not shortchange uh, 84 for Dickie. You know? Yeah, <laughs> Lucinda Dickie in 1984. So yeah, so like you said, breaking out with some uh, just like. Um, you know, little auditions and whatever. She did have uh, what looks to be a kind of like a background uh, dancer part in Greece too in 1982. And then uh, basically 1984 was her big flurry of movies. The first one that she was in, or I should say that they shot, where they kind of discovered her was actually for Ninja 3, The Domination. And I guess we should say, and she was the lead a- actress in it, the lead uh, character in it. I guess we should say just a little bit of background about the Ninja series. Started with Enter the Ninja, followed by Revenge of the Ninja, and then Ninja 3 Domination. Is It was always told to me that the Ninja films are, a, um, are like a franchise, but they're really not. They're three completely different stories. The only difference is, is Sho Kazugi is in it. Sometimes he's playing the good guy. Sometimes, sometimes he's playing the bad guy. But he's in it like in different roles throughout the movie. So he doesn't even play the same character. He just always plays a ninja type character. Yeah, yeah. and in fact, the only one where he's the main character is the second one, Revenge of the Ninja. Otherwise, right. they're really they really want to. Canon was all about shoving down this idea of white ninjas, so we get <laughs> Franco Nero in Enter the Ninja, which is a film I lo- I love. Enter the Ninja. Um, I like all three of them, but uh, Enter the Ninja might be my favorite one, and then Revenge of the Ninja, which is the actual Shokasugi starring one, and then this. Um, yeah, I, I, that was the whole like Ninja Three thing was has always been like a bone of contention with fans, and it making it. I mean, as a, a film that's celebrated anyways, is kind of a so bad it's good movie. I think that's just kind of part of the joke that it's called Ninja Three. Mm-hmm. But I think when they released it and called it that, I don't know if they actually expected people to realize it was supposed to be following these other two. And what made it even more confusing, as I'm sure you remember, Goat, is that the 80s were just full of ninja movies in general. Yes. So when you call it Ninja 3, like, well, what, what ninja movies is this supposed to be a sequel to? Because we were getting a lot of import, like Godfrey Ho ninja movies uh, coming over. Then a little later on, you had the American Ninja films. Just the, the 80s were uh, were ripe with ninjas. Yeah, like, I, like, Enter the Ninja has always been kind of like, I would say, with the exception of um, with uh, American Ninja, Enter the Ninja has, it was was one of the more like like popular titles. Like I just remember that title for some reason, and mm-hmm. like I never knew that it was connected to the Lucinda Dickey one. So yeah, so Ninja Three: The Domination. Um, we we should mention uh, this one was uh, directed by Sam Furstenberg, who directed a lot of canon movies, uh, a lot mm-hmm. of ninja movies, in fact. And uh, he'll also later direct another Lucinda Dickey movie. But, like, basically, she just got this role pretty much for her physical talents, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, she said she went on the audition and was, like, not very sure how it was going to go. And she she's very upfront and honest about how she was not very skilled as an actress. And I believe the, the scene they had her audition with was um, a possession scene. Where she had to, like, just kind of scream and everything. And... So it's I, I guess they were just looking for like the extremes in the audition, but I think obviously it's the like you said it's the gymnastics background, the dance background. They were probably looking at someone who could do all the the fight scenes and everything. And the, to to give it to like their credit, like we just said, like the fact that they signed her to this multi picture deal and right away put her put her into a lead role, it's clear that they were Golan and Globus were thinking about kind of making a star. Yeah, like, and I gotta say, like, I really miss that in terms of, um, you know, these companies that kind of push these movies out. Because there was a lot of these, even direct-to-video companies, uh, that would just push out a lot of product really quick. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it was filler, maybe not so good. 
But I kind of like uh, when you can go back and you can see, like, whether it be working for a director or just working for the same production company or whatever. I kind of like these people that were kind of like these these mini stars, like I would say, mm-hmm. during the 80s. Like, they just pop up in three or four movies that, like, you're very familiar with. And you think they have a bigger career than they do. And then, like, you look them up. I've had this happen many times. You look them up years later on IMDb and it turns out, oh, they really didn't do much other than kind of what I saw them in. Even like uh, someone who did more, but kind of fits in that mold. If we want to keep in the realm of canon and ninjas, is someone like a Michael Dudikoff, right? Where yeah. if you're if you're our age, you can grow up thinking that guy's like a giant action star, and then you realize, oh no, he, he kind of just did that one series and some other stuff, and then really kind of faded out pretty quickly. Yeah, I really thought Michael Dudikoff had this happening career going on, but really outside of the canon martial arts stuff, he really didn't do anything other than his. Uh, his uh, comedic role in Bachelor Party, then later another comedic role in uh, Jerry Springer Ringmaster. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. Yep. I literally only watched that movie because I hadn't seen Dudikoff in about 10 years. I'm like, what's he doing in this? You know what I mean? Is he like the shitty stepfather in that? Yeah, he's like the white trash yeah. guy. Yeah. 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 Which, I, I I don't know. Like, that movie's like, I totally wrote that movie off when it came out, you know, it came out and I watched it on cable later. I'm kind of oddly fascinated by Jerry Springer Ringmaster because, you know, the way things have changed over the years, I can't imagine at all there'd be, like, another, like, perfect storm of whatever culture, personality, whatever, where somebody, whether, like, a, a talk show would have a fictionalized movie based around it, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, although the talk show is pretty fictionalized as well. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but but you know it's it's kind of like the uh, veil of uh, I guess professional wrestling. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is an interesting like Ringmaster, which is kind of forgotten about nowadays. But I would say it's it definitely is more of an interesting cultural artifact than it is a good movie. Yeah, I think the last uh, studio that was like kind of in the canon mold in terms of putting out these these low budget sensationalistic pictures is probably Artisan. Uh, I'm pretty sure they did that. They did Belly. They did uh, well. Obviously, they did Blair Witch. They did um, uh, uh, like Soul Survivor. They they did a lot of these like kind of cheap movies that like for as cheap as they were, they always had kind of high profile releases. You know what I mean? And uh, that's kind of that's what I was thinking. Even like I'm sure we're gonna talk in a moment in more in detail about Ninja. But I was watching it yesterday, thinking about the fact that you know, anytime you're watching a canon film, you're thinking about the canon story in your head, kind of, and this yeah. this low budget studio that's just cranking out these cheapo action films. But then in the opening, you know, action sequence, we've got like a you know, a car stunt with a car flying into like a river, and I got a motorcycle, and it's like there's like some real like stuff you don't see in low budget film anymore, and that's yeah. and I think that's why people today revere and love canon. I mean, also the, just the insanity of their plots and everything. But they did. These were two guys who loved making movies, and they loved making big movies, even though they couldn't afford to make big movies. But they still, every dollar they spent is on screen. Exactly, and and like I, th- you know, it's kind of funny because I, I've been a fan of um, you know a handful of canon films, and um, it's kind of funny because it's like I've heard directors tell different stories in terms of working with canon. Uh, some of them kind of just come in as hired guns to shoot the movie and then like basically they have no input in the editing or whatever and then there's ones like I would say probably one of their their most prolific in-house directors was Sam Furstenberg uh, he was very enthusiastic for the films he, he you know he made I don't know how much you know ed- editorial control he had over it and stuff but he definitely was um, renowned by uh, mm-hmm. Golan and Globus for his his ability to shoot action and I think some of the best action you know of of all the canon films were films he worked on and it's like 
one thing really going back and like you said not you know it's like like you said like you were not trying to really go into thinking about the whole canon phenomenon and what happened and everything like that but when you watch some of their better pictures there is almost like this like enthusiasm that just like oozes from the screen you know, you know the way the films are made yeah, there's definitely a reason a lot of these films have hung on. You know, it's not just the, oh, haha, they're funny because they're kind of bad. No, there's like a, there is a real charm and enthusiasm to them that, um, you know, is, is evident. And I also want to mention this when you brought up Sam Furstenberg as an example of, you know, one of their stronger directors. He's also someone, if you go listen to commentaries and interviews of these casts, um, the casts like love him too. Like everyone yeah. seemed to really like working with Furstenberg, which is not always the case in these kind of low budget worlds too. Sometimes you get like, you know, more like a Jim Wynorski who's supposed to be like a nightmare to work with. Yeah. But, um, you know, so it's cool to know that. And even like um, in that Canon Films documentary, which if people haven't seen it, I would highly recommend. Um, you know, obviously people have their stories about Golden Globus, but there's like a lot of affinity for them as well, you know, for what, you know, there's just, as we said, their enthusiasm and, and what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah. There is even, um, cause there was electric boogaloo, which was the documentary of Canon films. And there was a second one that was supposed to come out that I think was going to be called the go, go boys. And I don't know what happened to it. I don't know if it ever got released or not, but I feel like, yeah, I remember that was, they were like kind of dueling projects, right. And yeah. I think electric boogaloo did the fact that it just won, you know, kind of put a, a damper on finishing that one as, as much as they wanted to. It's kind of funny though, Trev, because um, not to make this a whole Golden Globus canon show, but uh, you know their their model was to pump out as many movies as you could cheaply, and like some of them went to the direct video market, some of them like they would spend very little on the movie, but then promote the hell out of it and have good success in the theatrical and drive-in markets, but. It's kind of funny because a lot of people don't realize it because a lot of people see, like, you know, Canon as just this era that came and went. But, like, I'd say the major studios really kind of, like, you know, because Canon was able to swoop into that home video market and make a lot of money. If you look back at, like, the late 90s, pretty much all the uh, major studios started their own director video divisions, which if you look back, like... You know, like with the Weinsteins and, and, and Dimension put out all the Dust of Dawn and Prophecy sequels. Uh, Universal did a slew of direct-to-video cheerleader and American Pie movies. Like, like even Warner Brothers did, did, like, they're a little late to the game, but they end up coming back and doing, like, a lot of cheap Lost Boy direct-to-video movies. Like, pretty much a lot of the major studios ended up kind of copying the, uh, the canon formula later on to saturate the home video market during the DVD era. So. For sure, yeah. Yeah, no, they were definitely trendsetters. Uh, I mean, and that's why I was, I was really happy when that documentary came along, just because I felt like not only is it a fun documentary, and you know, if you have it on DVD, which I have, it's got like tons of Canon trailers on it and stuff. But just for it to finally get, you know, not just be a punchline, but also get some of the credit it deserves for what that company was. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, uh, very much. You know, Roger Corman always kind of gets his due of, um, mm-hmm. you know, help you know kind of launched these uh american filmmakers like james cameron martin scorsese and i feel like canon maybe doesn't have as much reverence with that in terms of uh they brought over a lot of foreign directors they also did a lot of people don't know canon actually did some art house pictures here and there too mm-hmm. um but but i i think if anything like you just the the sheer amount of productions they had going on there's a lot of actors uh, a lot of ADs, a lot of directors, a lot of editors, a lot of cinematographers who definitely, you know, got their career started. Just, you know, when there's somebody out there being so prolific, it's going to employ a lot of people and give a lot of people their start in the business. And I think that's really kind of, like you said, like you can't help watching canon stuff without having all that in the back of your mind. And I think with that, 
and watching Ninja 3, I think to somebody who kind of didn't know that background, you're kind of like, oh, this movie's so goofy, it's a mess. But then when you when you know the enthusiasm that goes behind some of their pictures, you know, it's kind of like, it, it's, a, it's a charm that comes across, you know what I mean? Kind of oh, sucks yeah, you in. for sure. So I guess to kick Ninja 3 off, I mean, this would be a movie that would be very hard to give a real detailed synopsis on. But like, <laughs> basically all you need to know is that there's a ninja um, traveling through the desert, and he has a secret cave. And he goes into a secret cave. And I don't know why this, this ninja would have a secret cave, but he does. And he kind of has like a, like a tomb that he opens up and a rock that glows out. And that's where he keeps his... Like he comes in in a business suit and he changes into his ninja gear, all his knives, throwing stars. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's been uh, hired to assassinate somebody who's, um, you know, uh, basically is on a golf course with a bunch of bodyguards. And I mean... Yeah, as we'll find out later, this person is an important scientist. <laughs> that's how we ever hear about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there wasn't a lot of backstory in the assassination. Even this opening scene, as great as it is, really, um, you know, it only takes about three minutes for this film to kind of demolish everything I've ever learned and heard about ninjas, which is that they are silent assassins who strike in the night. And this ninja decides the best time to go after this guy is on a golf course full of multiple people during yeah. broad daylight. Yeah, usually ninjas in other movies would strike um, at nighttime when the people would be at home with their hookers or whatever. And, like, you know, I always feel like that was a big assassination thing in the 80s uh, films, Trev. If, if somebody was going to get assassinated, they always got killed at night while they were with their hooker of choice. Like, Yeah. But no, no, no. This guy is, like, on broad daylight. So, the, like, the ninja attacks, there's, like, you know, shoot multiple bodyguards of the ninja gets fight. And you're like, great. Like, this movie's off to a great start. Good little five-minute action scene. Okay, let's roll into the story. No, 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 no. There's about 15 more minutes of action. <laughs> <laughs> about the first fourth of the running time is this opening action scene. Basically, the police come. The ninja, he, he, he's, he's on top of cop cars. He's slicing up uh, uniformed police officers with a ninja sword. He's yeah, causing... Basically decimates about, I'd say, what, roughly 40% of the LAPD. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's dozens of uh, dead police officers in their wake. I mean, uh, they, they pretty much like would have had to like, just bring everybody, all the cadets out of school immediately just to replenish the force after this guy was done. And uh, there's even a part where he jumps up onto a, he climbs up a tree and he jumps onto a police helicopter and he wreaks some havoc there. I mean, th- like I gotta admit, like like I kind of went into this film blind. I like I don't I kind of remember bits and pieces of it on cable, but I don't think I ever watched it all the way through. And uh, when the Blu-ray came out originally, the first Blu-ray came out, um, I just kind of blind bought it and I watched it and I was absolutely blown away by this opening action scene eventually just more and more cops come and they kind of have like I would say tactically this is probably not the best thing to do but they all surround him and shoot at him because like there would be a lot of crossfire wouldn't you think yeah Yeah. (laughs) but like like basically they shoot him 40 times okay he's dead we can now like progress the story now Trev no wait he disappeared but but he's in the sand now so he pops up he kills more police officers they shoot him a bunch of times, a bunch of times, a bunch of times. And basically what happens is Lucinda Dickey is a, uh, works for the telephone company, and she's in the area. This is kind of like out in a kind of a deserty area, a uh, wide open area. And uh, she's like working on some phone poles, climbing up them. And basically what happens is, you know, hence Ninja 3. I think it should be called Ninja 3, The Possession, but it's called The Domination. Mm-hmm. And basically the evil ninja uh, goes into the body of Lucinda Dickey. 
Yeah, he just, as she just sees, she just sees a, uh, she doesn't realize it's an evil ninja. She just sees an injured man and tries to help him. And he essentially hands her his sword and the sword, uh, you know, passes his spirit into her. Which I got to say, and I think the original cut of this movie did have a lot more, like according to what Lucinda was saying on an interview, I think there was more of like the resolution, you know, completion of this story. But I, like as ridiculous as the whole setup is, I actually think that could be like, a compelling storyline for like a comic book type action movie. But um then the movie gets really weird because you know, listening to Dickie, okay, like she saw this ninja die, whatever, she's gotta get questioned by the police. And then there's like a hunky cop who wants to hit on her nonstop energy. <laughs> Yeah, um, like you're, so his name is Billy, and we find out that she actually has a second job, which is one of the more, you know, people say uh, canon is cheesy and unrealistic, but I think this movie has at least one realistic plot element that she would need to work two jobs to afford that apartment in L.A. Yeah. So besides working as a telephone line woman, she's also an aerobics instructor. And um, she kind of like blows Billy off at the police station after talking to them about, you know, the, the, the ninja's death and everything. And then he follow he you know he's so obsessed with her that he goes into full like stalker territory and goes to the gym where she teaches aerobics, and then in our, kind of our first action scene with her where we start to see what's happening, uh, she's leaving the class and she walks outside and these men are basically about to rape one of her students, yeah, uh, and like again in broad daylight and in she front gets of involved. a huge crowd we should say in front of too. a huge crowd yeah and yeah. she gets involved and starts fighting them using her ninja skills which she did not realize she she had. Billy watches this all, and I was just thinking, this this is a cop who is watching uh, an attempted rape, and then, you know, four giant men fighting this woman. He does not step in at all. He waits until she wins the fight, and then he arrests her, and he essentially uses arresting her as, like, blackmail to get her to agree to go on a date with him. Exactly. Like, he will not give up, and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say. Like, um, I'm usually not somebody... All to- cops are bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, especially, I should mention, too, like, the montage where, like, the cops all shoot. Now, keep in mind, they were just shooting a ninja who had murdered 20, 30 people. But the movie kind of does, like, a weird thing where they kind of pause it where, like, all the cops who killed him were actually evil in some way, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah there, there, like, there's quite a few of them that they depict as kind of scumbags. Um, and I suppose that's because that feels like a studio note to me, right? The idea of yeah. now she's possessed and where the film goes this is like a somewhat clever idea because she's now dating a cop that allows her to keep coming into contact with all his partners and his um you know the people he works with and the ninja inside her remembers that these are the men who shot him and so she goes and seeks revenge I'm st- i i could imagine a studio exec even somewhere like a canon coming in saying well if we want her to be like forgiven at the end of the film we can't just have her slaughtering innocent people um right. make them like shitty you know yeah so you you get one guy is like kind of like an older cop that lives in like a like I mean it, it it looks a little rundown from the outside but when you see his house on the inside it's a shithole this guy and he's like he like I forget what was what was the guy where she goes to his house what was his big scumbag thing he was he was like collecting money or doing something real real shady yeah he was, was like on the take or something yeah yeah he was he's roughly on the take. Well, there's a blistering action scene where he's playing pool in a wife beater and his boxer shorts in his house. <laughs> and uh, the the ninja, the possessed ninja, Lucinda Dickey, comes in. And, like, I actually like this scene a lot where she just pretty much beats the shit out of him and kills him. Um, next, you get another guy who's, like, really into, like, sleazy shit, one of the cops. 
He meets he meets what seems to be he takes a couple of hookers to like a local sauna bathhouse I'd say mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. and they're and they're in a in a hot tub and there's just like beer bottles alcohol bottles everywhere and like who was drinking all this I have no idea this is just like a sleazy but like I actually really like this scene too like Lucinda comes in like instead of going with the traditional ninja garb the way she murdered the first crooked cop like she pretty much like slinks in like all sexy. And then, like, um, wearing very little, like a bathing suit, whatever. And then the cop, like, he just immediately forgets his hookers. And he's all mm-hmm. about Lucinda Dickey. And then I have to say, like, like even rewatching this, seeing this, this was, I think, the third time I've seen this movie. I'm kind of shocked by kind of how brutal this scene was. What do you think about this hot tub murder? Well, you, uh, not necessarily, I mean, like, the way she handles him, but the fact that she does then just turn on the other two women and, like... Yeah. Yeah, murder both of them as well. Um, I like so Lucinda Tick actually tells a story about how those two actresses didn't like her. Yeah. Um, primarily because she felt like they were afraid of her because she had to like beat them up and hold them under the water and they didn't want to do that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I like the scene a lot too because I well, first of all, of course, it's Lucinda Dickey in a bikini. We we're gonna like it. Yeah. Um, but Beautiful. yeah, it makes sense. Yes, and I do I do like that where the guy is just like instantly like when the two women are like who's this and he's like I don't know but just let it happen. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, it's, uh, it, again, I feel like that's realistic given what we've already seen for this guy. Yeah, so you get a, you get a good murder there, and then and then at pretty much that point that's where we really focus on the blistering love affair between her and Billy the cop. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure you want to talk about this uh, love scene with the juice and everything. I mean, I guess you have to. It's one of the more infamous scenes. Um, so when, you know, when their their first date, you know, I, I, can't, I, I feel like he asks her something about, do you have any, like, drinks at your house or something? Do you have any, like, soft drinks? And she says, I don't, but I have V8. And just that seems like an odd line. But then when we cut to their first love scene at her back at her apartment, um, she takes a can of V8 and pours it all over her breasts yeah. for him to, to lick off. Um, yeah. One of the more – now, I look, I love Lucinda Dickey. Uh, you know, as a kid, I had a huge crush on her, still do, but that is like one of the more unappealing you yeah. know, things I can think of. I mean, V8 is gross in general, and bringing a sticky tomato juice into uh, sex, yeah. all right, well, you do you, I suppose. But. And she's kind of like after a workout, and they're kind of both sweaty, and the V8 juice. He's also like covered in hair. He's oh, like he's so... He's like one of the hairiest oh, people I've ever seen. He's like a Robin Williams monkey man, pretty much. And, um... Yeah, I gotta say, like, if I was ever, if I was really gonna have like a legit criticism of um, of this movie, I would actually say, like, and I don't even like really dislike the guy, but I think if you think about the kind of machinations of this this storyline, I th- I think I would have gone with an actor who was like a little less macho, because he almost seems like a New York, New Jersey kind of like smart alecky tough guy i think i would have went so it was with like more of like a younger like pretty boy type actor and then like because he really doesn't uh, this character the cop he really doesn't ever factor in too much like in an action sense of the movie so i would just kind of let between the the two of them i would kind of just let her you know be like the main dominant physical force between them two like i didn't think she really needed a hunky boyfriend in this yeah no that's really just a byproduct of all these like you know 80s films feeling like they need a love story but i agree you could you could drop it and it wouldn't matter and in fact it might be a little more compelling to see her trying to figure this out on her own yeah i mean you could almost like substitute 
And I guess probably what they try to do is they try to bring in the conflict of he was he was one of the cops who shot the ninja too. So like you know I, every time I watch this movie, I think there's going to be a bigger conflict of like will he, will she have to kill him or whatever. But like it never gets played up that big dramatically. Like I think you could, I think you could snip out the love story and maybe substitute a, a female friend of hers or just a friend in general that would you know be helping her out here and there. But like mm-hmm. yeah. But you know, like th- this, this, uh, this is an exploitation picture, so there must be a love scene. And I mean, from what I remember, the love scene's not too graphic. It's just disgusting no. with the VA juice. And um, I, we'll come up with some better examples of it later with the breaking films. But even in this movie, even though she's literally murdering people on screen, there's just a, a complete. Um, wholesome quality to Lucinda Dickey, which is, I think is like really translates into her star power. you know, yeah, it's funny. This is ultimately like a very strange movie to be her first lead role because as you said, she's just inherently likable. Um, and so like whenever, I don't know, I, I do love this movie, but again, it's, it's kind of a movie that you tend to like ironically to a certain sense. You never really buy her as an evil character when she's completely overtaken. Um, problematic character they give her that eye makeup to try and make her look japanese which yeah. was an interesting choice um but is that only but, when she's possessed right it is yeah okay, okay yeah um but yeah i mean uh so she's definitely your you, i guess that's good though because you're on her side and you do want her to figure this out which they start to by going to like an exorcist which we should mention is played by the great james hong and i'm always excited to see james hong like i i really don't know why but like every time i watch this scene with james hong and it is you know, one of the wildest scenes in the movie, you know, outside of her apartment, uh, her, her huge, uh, warehouse apartment where the sword flies around on strings, yeah. uh, That's the possessed true. sword. But, uh, this James Hong, uh, film is a, or scene is a highlight. And, uh, like, I don't know why, like, I always feel like this is like some type of weird prequel to his low paying character. Mm-hmm. Like Definitely has a, a similar vibe, yeah. Like yeah. maybe Lopan, it's like Lopan's like um, good brother. Yeah, like his 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 still human brother. And so like they literally bring her in, they they chain her up, and this is where you see like a lot of trailers or a lot of clips that people like to snip out of this movie to sh- you know showcase kind of how wild it is. And uh, I mean, it's just. I mean, I don't know how to describe it, Trev. Like, it's everything. It's his exorcism. There's gymnastics. There's like mm-hmm. everything going on in the scene. There's an obvious just Lucinda Dickey puppet that's yeah, being yeah. spun around. Yeah. yeah, at a very rapid rate. And just, I mean, I got to admit, like, like you know, like, like when I first saw this movie, the opening ninja scene, I was like, great. This is awesome. I was loving it. I was like, you know, everything. Like, I just, to me, this was like, like, I thought this movie was going to be like on the level of like a commando or something. You know what I mean? And then when we got to the scene where she killed the guy in the hookers in the in the hot tub i was like i was like okay i get it this is more of a exploitation picture and then when i got to this james hong scene i was like oh damn this is just like let's throw in the kitchen sink let's get as wild as possible this is like absolutely like you know spinal tap turning up to 11 level of filmmaking and uh i don't know like i love how this movie keeps like ramping it up and taking up different notches all 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 the time you know Mm mm-hmm and I'd say probably pretty much at this point, with the third act, it wraps up. We get introduced all of a sudden, um, the show Kazugi character, who he's kind of been shadowing her, and he's kind of like a mystery figure, kind of keeping an eye on her and stuff. And he's been tracking this evil ninja, and he, he knows, you know, everything that happened, that she got possessed and stuff. 
And it's like, if unless I'm missing like any big scenes, it pretty much just goes into the pretty much straightforward finale, doesn't it, Trev? Yeah, I, I do just what we, you, you mentioned it quickly. We should talk just a little bit about the, the amazing uh, scene in her apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, her apartment is awesome. I mean, like I said, it's just as a warehouse, but I love that she's got like the neon light everywhere and um, has the arcade game called Bouncer, which I'm pretty sure was made up for this movie because I do not yeah. remember that as a game. <laughs> Although it, the cabinet looks fake as hell. <laughs> yeah, when she plays it, though, it looks like it could be a real game. Like, I get that as like a game concept, right? But um, but the the possession scene, one of the more infamous scenes, as you said, there's like the, the exorcism scene. I think the other infamous scene in this uh, besides the V8 is the scene where she tries to dance away the possession. She can like, cause you know, she's not always possessed. It overtakes her times. And one of the times she feels it's kind of coming on, she decides to turn on her boombox and, and try to dance it away. And, uh, the, the arcade machine actually <clears throat> shoots lasers out at her and kind of overtakes her. And then the sword comes flying out and comes at her. And this is not a movie that benefits, uh, greatly from Blu-ray and that you can totally see the strings uh, carrying the sword. But, very fun sequence. I've never seen that in before or since someone trying to dance away their possession. Well, I know she was saying in one of the interviews that um, Menachem, I think it was, like really was into flash dance and like part mm-hmm. of why he cast her was, uh, you know, in her experience with dancing. Because, um, yeah, there really isn't a reason for her to dance in this particular movie. But like, yeah, that was like their, I don't know if you call it homage, but just them trying to interject some flash dance popularity, which is funny because I mean I actually remember flash dance really well when it came out, and it was like, for lack of a better term, you know, it was kind of like a chick flick, and like mm-hmm. I don't think the audience for flash dance would definitely really have been that core audience going to see Ninja Three, you know, at the Grindhouse or whatever. <laughs> No, but I mean, but Jennifer Beals was a sex symbol, and so yeah. trying to cash in on like, hey, this is the next Jennifer Beals, because she does talk in that interview too about how they even like blew her hair out to, because she has naturally, you know, straight hair, and they gave yeah. her kind of a more permed haircut in this one to look like Jennifer Beals in Flashdance. Yeah, it's crazy. So Jennifer Beals' career—that's a whole other time. Like we just about, like someone's career was never as big as it should have been, but that's that's a. Story for another time, I guess. Yeah, and and, and I, I like I still like her. Like she, first mm-hmm. of all, she she aged about two years in the, like the twenty or thirty years following Flashdance, which that was remarkable. But like, yeah, I always liked her when I saw her in small bits afterwards. And yeah, there's always that fleeting sadness. I think probably like the only movie I can really think of where you're going to get a good do- dose of Jennifer Beals after Flashdance is probably that first Prophecy film. Um, I'll actually give a shout out to an, uh, what I believe is a, it's a divisive film, but I think it's kind of underrated. Um, the Bride with her and Sting. Where she oh plays yeah, the Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, and Sting plays Doctor Frankenstein. Hey, I remember, I, was that was that a hit at all? No, no, no. It was not a hit. Okay. And, you know, it's like even like critically, I don't think it was very well received. But I think it's worth like re reinvestigating, especially now in a, you know in a time when people love to give more feminist readings and everything. It really is the only film to really have the bride be the main, the central figure. And and uh, you know, it's not great. Like, but I think it's a, it's I think it's an entertaining film. I actually think Sting is pretty fun as the doctor, and you you get um, Clancy Brown as the monster. There's some good stuff. Oh, in nice. There. Yeah, I need to check that out. I haven't seen that movie since I was a kid. I used to. Like like I said, like I couldn't remember if that was a hit or not. I figured it probably wasn't, but it was just one of those movies that I, I caught on cable a lot. And then for some reason, I would always watch it because I was kind of fascinated with Sting because I loved his um, his role in Dune. Mm-hmm. So like as a kid, yeah, he kind of held my interest. So yeah, so the, the, the wrap-up, originally there was... 
uh, a different ending here, according to what was said on the interview, where it was more about uh, her finally, like, um, the whatever ninja, evil ninja coming out. And, like, once he comes out and they take the... Because Lopan uh, Jr. Uh, wasn't really successful in getting it out of her. They finally show Gazugi does, like, a ninja magic ritual which which they i i didn't understand this either because it's like they take the soul out of her and just they don't they just put it back into the ninja's dead body <laughs> yeah seems like a, why don't put it into like a rabbit or something yeah i know or like if anything if he could just be in the dead body as a zombie anyway it's like why did he ever really have to leave you know what i mean mm-hmm. but um because he i mean he is a supernatural ninja we don't want to make it sound like he just you know this guy just died he did whatever because he he clearly took about 35 uh you know know, caliber you know rounds into the chest and body and everything from the cops beginning movie this man is definitely hard to kill if anything else but apparently the what lucinda was saying was um originally like once they got the the ninja soul out of her that she would be the one who would pretty much have the one-on-one fight with the ninja because the idea would be that she actually absorbed uh you know kind of like actually now that i think about it, it's kind of weird it's kind of like ray like there's that whole thing with ray absorbed kylo ren's uh dark force powers because they had the mind link like that's kind of what was going to happen here it was uh, like she was supposed to like get the soul out of her but retain the ninja fighting ability yeah and i think we still we do still see like the remnants of that original ending because you do have the scene where she stabs the ninja and it does feel like oh that's the end right but then they just add in that extra beat of like no he comes back and we want him to fight shokasugi some more and I don't like I kind of agree with her that the movie does need more action at the end than just where it cuts off with her stabbing him. But I I do think it is kind of disappointing that she's so then detached from the big finale, everything that follows to have her be the star of the film and just watching this final fight is kind of a bummer. Yeah, because it, it's it's almost because the cop characters are consoling her. It's almost like in a weird way, like her her character kind of gets and I don't think there was any you know intentional doings about it but it it does kind of feel like all of a sudden that at the end her character get kind of gets knocked down a notch to just kind of be in like a damsel in in distress type thing like she's not Mm -hmm. really you know and like that's kind of like the coolest thing you know in the movie was uh was that you know she was a female ninja or whatever um, well, yeah, and for a company that was so obsessed with franchises, right? It is surprising that because you were you were mentioning how this could have been like a this cool like origin film, it's it's very surprising that you don't have the film end revealing that she still is a ninja, like she's absorbless, because then you could just do sequels with her as a as a good ninja going to avenge things. Um, exactly. I, I, the fact that Canon did not take that bait is kind of mind blowing. Yeah, because like I have to say, like especially compared to the previous two, I mean, especially compared to Revenge of the Ninja. Shokazugi is kind of just like an obligatory third wheel, I think, in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could have like definitely either not had him in it at all, maybe get just gotten a more like probably what I would have done is probably not pay Shokazugi. Uh, I would probably just get like a lesser known martial artist, and then 
And then I would probably have have his character get killed off, and then like Lucinda Dickey has to finish off the evil ninja herself. Like that's probably how or, I would like. Or it. I mean, if you really want Shokasugi in this, and you want to give her more of the spotlight, why not just have Shokasugi play the evil ninja, and then yeah. give him the whole opening action sequence, and then you could even have him kind of show up in visions she's having later, and then he comes back for the end, and you have her versus Show, which would make way more sense, right? Because then it's like the guy who's in the previous two films versus your new star. Um, but hey. We didn't work for Canon back then, so... No, we didn't. And to be fair, they were filming these things so quick, there wasn't a lot of thought. I guess that's the downside, you know. It's easy for us to sit here with twenty twenty hindsight. But overall, you're like, yeah, I mean, I, I would highly recommend this to really any anybody who's an action fan who knows what they're getting into with these type of films because the, there is enough action here where where it is it makes it worth your while to watch it for that and then like also people who just love wild 80s movies for sure i'd say yeah, yeah. i honestly i honestly can't fathom anybody watching this and not enjoying it it's a super entertaining movie i mean it's like it's a it's a bad movie classic for a reason but even that like when I, it's not a bad movie in the same way like the room or birdemic is um yeah. It's just it's just so goofy, but that it's entertaining. But uh, but yeah, the action's good. Lucinda is beautiful. He said she's great to watch her, and just a lot of strange things. Like I mean, you know, as weird as the V8 sex scene is, you'll always remember it. Oh yeah, and I mean, just I don't know, man. Like like I mean, especially if if you're like us, like you're a fan of hers. Um, I mean, the, you know, this is probably the third best movie. I mean, in terms of her stuff, this is the third best movie she was probably in. Um. I'll give this one. This is actually my favorite of hers. Okay, okay. I just like I really like her in the breaking films because there's really no. Real... Oh, I mean, performance-wise, this is her worst one. Yeah. Yeah, that's, saying... that's what I'm saying. Like, just, okay, yeah. just she just isn't coming across with with as much personality here, and you yeah. know, it, it, it's the inexperience that she even admitted in the interview she didn't really know how to act quite yet at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like I like I gotta say, like if you look at the timeline. Of like how she was saying they pretty much went straight from Ninja Three to Break In, like I mean I I think it definitely this this film was a learning experience for her and I think Furstenberg definitely you know the way she talked about their relationship the way they worked together I think definitely you know he kind of uh, whipped her into shape and helped her along uh, into becoming a you know legit film actress. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so so now we're really getting into the real cult cultural i say uh event horizon and like you know out of all the the canon movies trev um i can't really think of anyone uh that really i mean there there was big hits for sure and lots of profitable films and kind of like the bronson films kind of loomed i could say the biggest in the canon era of just constant just there was a constant assault of charles bronson at the 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 movie theaters for a while but really, in terms of like, hey, this is like not just a, a a genre movie, but this is more of like a cultural movie that like actually means something and it's going to be, you know, well thought of. I mean, there's a lot of people that that really analyze canon now. I'm I'm a I'm in a, actually one or two canon film group appreciation groups on Facebook. But it, but even like back in the day, Trev, like you know, five, ten years later after Breaking came out, I remember like people like really like like being attached to it because it was like you know breakdancing. I, like I don't even think I can like really really express how big of a deal breakdancing was. Like as a kid, like that's all you heard about for like a three or four year period. 
I was having the same conversation with a friend uh, last night. I was t- so I was telling them about how I just watched these two films, and it's a it's a younger friend who was not a kid of the '80s like we were. And I was explaining how, yeah, I, I said the same thing. I was like, I can't overstate how big Breakdancing was, uh, and you can feel like that the fact that Breakin' and Breakin' Two are not the only two breakdancing movies that came out in the span of a few years. There was a, there was a glut of them, um, documentaries and other fictional movies. And then, you know, you're always seeing it on MTV and just like news reports about the new dance craze that's sweeping the cities and things. Yeah. And it was just, it was everywhere. And yeah, this, this movie was, uh, like the, the kind of the apex of that. And like, I just remember, like I did it with my friends and like, I mean, I wasn't like heavy into it. Like I wasn't doing routines and stuff, but like I knew people like, like we would always like whenever you got a cardboard box, man, break that thing down, tape it down to the driveway or in the basement, wherever. Like I, like I remember for like, no kidding for like a period of time everybody's house you would go over there would be their cardboard somewhere where, where yeah, and whichever, whichever kid in the neighborhood was like the best at breakdancing everybody knew it right it was always yeah. like get, wanting them to do it so yeah i would do the, like the little corny things where i would like you know kind of be on my hands and and, and uh my feet like you know uh facing upwards where you kind of kick your feet and then i would kind of mm-hmm. spin my legs but but i mean i you know I, like i like i wasn't like good at it i didn't really have the body control and stuff that you really needed to do it i definitely didn't do the robot stuff like the way you know you really should do it but uh yeah so i guess like i don't know how much you can really go into breaking but like basically the framework of the storyline is that Lucinda Dickey is a, a traditional dancer, as she was in real life. Um, and she's like, I, what would you say? Is it a dance troupe, a conservatory? Is it just a school where she's paying to, to get trained? Or like, what would you say the setup is of when we first meet her in the movie? Well, she's, yeah, she's in a class that's getting trained, but it, but the guy who runs it is definitely like, a, he has like a bigger dance troupe. Because essentially he keeps trying to convince her to join that troupe and like, you know, yeah. go along with him. Because they're a troupe that kind of get the sense they get the first shot at a big production that happens in this, in this city. Um, and she's doing that. And then she's also like a waitress. Um, just, you know, um, I don't think we learned in the sequel that she's actually rich, but I don't think that is ever said in this one. No. Right? Is that what yeah. Okay. That, that I, I, we'll get, when, when we get yeah, to we'll, breaking we'll too. Yeah. <laughs> but I, cause I had, cause, cause I really, I have to say like, I really immediately, I was hooked into this character of, of, um, well, spe- special K, but yeah, it's Kelly. Cause, because I was going to say, too, in, in Ninja, she's uh, Christy. In uh, Breakin', she's Kelly. She kind of, and then in her last movie, Trailer Camp, she's Corey. So she kind of always has similar names for some reason. But yeah, so like, like I mean, I think this was definitely, they were hooking into like literally the flash dance, the, the um, chorus line, like those type of movies of the ilk, like the struggling name. They're also Staying Alive, which John Travolta came out, I think, the same year, the year before, something like that. Um, yeah, so I mean, I like I, I gotta admit, I'm just a sucker for these ones where it's like anybody in the arts, whether it be a musician, a singer, a dancer, whatever, uh, scraping by, you know, trying to get whatever. But it, like, one thing I thought was interesting, and uh, I don't know if it was like if ahead of its time or if it was like just like this is the way the world was, but I was really surprised that they threw in that this subplot that, yeah, her teacher is actually a bad guy because he keeps trying to get her into bed. Yeah, no, and there's a, a flat-out, like, assault scene, which is very pre-Me Too movement. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and we talked about it in these genre films of the time, is is the whole, I mean, hell, uh, just in Ninja 3, we are just talking about there was this bizarre, like, like, uh 
you know, like like borderline rape in broad daylight, and obviously Kanan was doing all the um, the Death Wish films at the time, but it was like, like I don't know if that was just like a a, a requirement of the time for Canon, but like it, it it is weird, but I like it because it, it definitely like kind of gives you a story motivation for her to separate herself from you know like like it makes sense that then she would transition into a, like a different world of dance story wise. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a very tradi- like it's there's nothing super original about the story, but like you said, but if uh, it's it's very easy to still get sucked up into it, and part of that is like you said, she's just um, it's interesting. It's like you said, they went they rolled right into this one, but she's definitely better in this. Like you can just see yeah. already, and maybe it's maybe it is just that the character has like more depth. Um, I'm sure that helps because <laughs> there's not much going on in Ninja Three. But, and, um, yeah, it's I easy think to, it's easy to be on her side here. Yeah, I mean she's just immediate. I mean, like we said, like with all the weird shit going on in Ninja Three, like she's still very likable. But with this, as the Kelly character, like you're definitely like you're on board with this character like from the get go, and like that's just one thing. You know, it's just some people have it and some people don't you know some people have screen presence you know just like like there's always like guys are always ca- uh, typecast as villains because they they pull that off great there's just something about certain people and i think it probably has a lot to do with just uh lucinda dickie's real personality of just like they're just like instantly likable when you see them on mm-hmm. screen you know what i mean mm-hmm. so yeah so then we're introduced to um and I should say a little bit of background once we get into the breakdancing world here is this movie was inspired by there was actually a documentary called Breaking and Entering and then it got shortened down to Breaking for the feature film but uh this documentary uh that showcased you know the kind of this this new trend that was going on at this club in LA it was a, kind of like a multi um uh, cultural club with uh, uh both uh, Latino and black kids and just everybody in between like really um, and we should say too, like, cause I think, I think breakdancing and b-boy dancing, all that kind of got, you know, as the eighties kind of swept up like later on travel, I think it all became synonymous with, with rap, but this is actually a lot of the scenes and the music at the time. It, it was like a different subgenre called electro. Mm-hmm. So like. You know stuff like uh, African Barbados, Planet Rock, like more like that type of music, more more like literally like dance music, with definitely definitely like the beginnings of like the hip hop feel in it. But it wasn't exactly like straight up rap, I would say. Although we do have a, a famous quote unquote rap talker <laughs> making an appearance in this movie <laughs> mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we're introduced to um, these two guys who were also featured in the documentary. Um, you know, th- this movie is kind of loosely based on the documentary setting. Uh, basically, I always uh, mess this up because I have to adapt to the three names. So you have, um, oh dang, I keep wanting to say Adolfo. What is it, Alonzo? No, it's Adolfo. Okay, yeah, Adolfo Quinones. I think that's how you say his last name. Whose dancer name is Shabadoo in real life. So mm-hmm. that's how he was known in the documentary, Shabadoo. But for this movie, they give him the nickname of Ozone. And it's kind of weird. I don't know how you feel about this, Trev, but I've always known him as Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp as Boogaloo Shrimp. But then, yeah, like, I, always, I always talk about it that way. I don't understand why the movie just didn't use those street names because they're better and more memorable than what they have. Exactly. And, like, 
and then his partner, which is this younger kid, uh, played by uh, Michael Chambers, whose who's real-life dancing name is Boogaloo Shrimp. But in the movie, he's Turbo. And yeah, like, and not only that, but just their, their real dance names are so much better than Ozone and Turbo. <laughs> yeah, Ozone and Turbo sound like American Gladiators. Shabadoo yeah. and Boogaloo Shrimp sound like breakdance sensations. Yeah. And these are two, like you said, these are two of the original, actual innovators of the, of the art form. Yeah, I mean, just to give some background of who they are, um, you know, they were getting well-known at this time because, um, I mean, like, literally world-class dancers these guys were, which I was really surprised. Like, I always knew about them, but I didn't realize how... Uh, legit their pedigree was um, even at this time. So Shabadoo was kind of like uh, I, in his mid-20s, and his character in the movie originally was supposed to be like an 18-year-old kid, and I'm glad that they actually gave him the role. But but basically, yeah, he had been doing this a long time. He was a choreographer. He Around this time, he did the choreography for Lionel Richie's uh, All Night Long video, which was very one of the most famous videos of the of the um, 80s. And you can see him also in Boogaloo Shrimp in that video. But they were they were touring around him. Boogaloo Shrimp, I should say, was actually a minor mm-hmm. at the time, and uh, his mother had signed some uh, kind of uh, parental rights uh, over to Shabadoo so that they could tour around. Like they were literally touring the around uh, touring around the world with Lionel Richie doing, you know, his big stage show and stuff. So I mean, like in a weird way, for how probably as cheaply made as Breaking was, Trev. I mean, the, like Cannon lucked out. I mean, I mean, obviously these guys were probably just hungry to do a movie period but like i think they got really lucky with the with the guys they got so because they had this rapport uh shabadoo and boogaloo shrimp aka ozone and turbo because they had this rapport in real life for years uh, like they have a amazing chemistry and like in like um shabadoo uh, even refers to them as like the the what is it the dean martin and jerry lewis of, of the dance world like mm-hmm. they kind of do these comedic gestures so like yeah, so, like, basically, they get introduced, um, man, this movie is jam-packed with celebrities, ain't it, Trump? <laughs> I was going to ask if you were going to talk about it. So, she first encounters <laughs> Ozone and Turbo on Venice Beach. They're, they're doing an act on the boardwalk, and there's a very, I mean, it's, it's now at this point, it's just amazingly distracting yeah. cameo. Uh, we can't even call it a cameo, because it's not a cameo, but now it seems like one. Um, in the background, one of the people dancing, uh, you know, just along with them or dancing to the routine is none other than Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yes. If you've, you've, you've all seen the gif of it, for sure. Yeah, uh, distractedly dancing in, like, the same, like, spandex singlet that that he wears in, like, the pool scene, uh, pool fighting scene in uh, Lionheart later on, in the exact same outfit. But, I mean, he's all about it. And, like... I gotta admit, for a guy from Belgium, whatever, like he's over the top. But 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 I'm I'm gonna stick up for the for the Van Damster right here. He's not that bad. No, and I, and you, you remember he spoke like no English at this point. Yeah, I was watching the scene. Go, you might have had the same fleeting thought as well. I was watching the scene. So he's very distracting. You're keeping your eye on him the whole time, and I'm looking yeah. at the crowd. And the crowd has also got several very attractive women in bikinis yeah. dancing along. And I was like, "Oh man, JCVD totally slept with at least like three of those women after this scene." Yeah, and I, I should say because I was like, I was like, I actually rewound the scene twice to to to, to zero in on the JCVD dancing, and um, I was like, actually, uh, I don't know, I even missed it the first time, but the guy dancing next to him in a couple of the shots, um, it's actually the guy who plays Tong Po in Kickboxer. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and, like, apparently, like, like uh, the reason, uh, I forget what his name is, like, Michael Quesada or something like that, 
is is I never knew this Trev like at all, even though I've watched this movie a bunch of times on Blu-ray. And Kickboxer Tong Po is uh, wearing uh, heavy, heavy prosthetic makeup to um, uh, let's just say uh, swap ethnicities. <laughs> so it 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 it's it's very easy to uh, um, you know not realize that this is also Tong Po dancing alongside <laughs> JCVD. So yeah, so like basically. It's pretty much like Kelly is like down in the dumps and she kind of like sees these guys dancing on the street. Like, like I, I'm guessing we're supposed to kind of believe that this is like, you know, the very beginnings of the dance craze and like not a lot of people know about it and stuff. And like she's really taken, you know, into it and, and whatever. And like pretty much just, I, I guess you could say that like, uh, you know, like Shabadoo, uh, Ozone, uh, Boogaloo Shrimp, Turbo, and then kelly become a three you know uh, a trio and uh you know they start teaching her her way of dancing and stuff like that and like i was surprised that um well actually i wasn't surprised but but shabadu in real life he expressed that like at the time he thought this was really whack that they were doing a mm-hmm. movie with a white girl because i mean obviously like part of the reason they were doing this movie was to you know, help expose, and they were kind of like the innovators of a lot of this dance stuff. And uh, but at the at the end of the day, he you know he kind of like uh, came around and, and and saw that like you know by including her and including other types of people, um, this helped like the art form of this dance style like get exposed yeah. really worldwide. I actually agree with him, and I totally sympathize with where he's coming from on that because I think that is if this movie was if you did this like today, it would certainly be a discussion, right? About like why is the why is the lead in this uh, a white woman when this is about breakdancing? But to the movie's credit, and I'm sure this is what he picked up on too, is that the movie never posits that she becomes like the greatest break dancer or anything. And in fact, her dancing throughout the film remains kind of more steeped in that original classical training. And the idea is that by joining them and becoming a threesome, uh, maybe that's the wrong word, <laughs> a trio. <laughs> I almost uh, said it too. <laughs> but becoming a trio, because she has a completely different style, it like gives them something they didn't have before. Because we should say, I, I do want to mention why they become a trio. Um, it's because she goes to just visit them at like a breakdancing event where they get in a dance battle with their rivals, a, a group called Electro Rock. And Electro Rock is these two guys, and they're doing this dance battle. And then the, the Electro Rock reveals that they have a third, a, a woman who's like a breakdancer. And that's how turbo and ozone get beat and then kelly's like well i could join and there's some good stuff here where like you know because um ozone has a crush on her he's all for it and boogaloo shrimp is like or sorry turbo is like no she's white she's classically trained we don't want her and she has to kind of like win him over but um but yeah to get back to my point it's more that she she adds something and then they learn from her she learns from them and it's kind of more like the idea of these two worlds merging and it's not like oh she's now the best this isn't like this isn't uh, Ryan Gosling teaching everyone about jazz and La La Land. You know, this is this is a little bit more fair about how it's presented. Yeah, and like you said, in that that scene, because it's it's, it's kind of portrayed as a big revelation when the guys from Electrolock uh, reveal their their female dance partner. It's like almost Mortal Kombat style. They kind of throw this woman through the air at at uh, Turbo and Ozone, and she kind of does the Liu Kang Mortal Kombat bicycle kick, like. It's mm-hmm. it's pretty good. It's pretty it's pretty powerful. Like I like these dance battles and like, you know, watching this movie, I'm like, dang, like this movie really. I mean, there there had been these like dance movies like this at the time, but like this movie to me really was with the kind of the dance battle scenario that they set up in this. Like this really was like the predecessor to like You Got Served and Battle of the Year and like all those movies that came out in the early to mid two thousands. You know what I mean? 
Like, yeah. Although, can I ask you something? Go in, yeah. in these like in these battle scenes and in uh, you know this this world that they're positing here. And this is probably even more apparent in the second one. We have <laughs> dance battles that do not occur uh, in a sanctioned club. Yeah. But uh, but how do you know when you've won the dance battle? It seems right. like both like in in both cases the team who loses is just kind of like suddenly goes like oh man and they like walk off. It's like well wait a minute like and then there's at least one sequence in this where I feel like the team that is shown to be the losers i thought was actually like the doing the way more interesting routine uh yeah. and that's just me i'm not like a qualified judge or anything but yeah it's strange it's i was thinking about that how it's not like a rap battle where the crowd is making it evident of who's winning because the crowd's just cheering everybody yeah but. i mean i guess it's just that thing of like you just feel like a sucker if they if they mm. do some cool shit in your face <laughs> and you walk away i i, I do want to mention you know because there's a lot of these kind of interstitial little dance scenes throughout the the movie that are just there for pure popcorn entertainment and i love them and you know there's some of them you're like oh they you know this isn't necessary for the story but some of these scenes became very very uh you know uh loved in kind of the pop culture pop culture sense and uh, one of the things i should say for really no other reason story-wise i don't think uh turbo and ozone uh work a night job at like a liquor store a little convenience store and like that leads to a great scene with uh, Turbo Boogaloo Shrimp uh, doing a, a, a kind of like a magical dance with a broom outside, mm-hmm. and uh, and like yeah, apparently that was uh, like apparently some rumblings is like that scene is what inspired Michael Jackson to do the moonwalk and all that. I'm not really sure because I don't know the history of like who did what first, but I thought that was interesting that like you know i mean it's just it's easy to watch this movie now because we've we've had 30 years of this style of dancing and it's so widespread but like to really understand like how in the if it wasn't the first or if they didn't innovate it at the very like this is like the ground floor of this entire cultural revolution that went through the 80s the 90s and pretty much i would say took over by the 2000s it's nice too because it's the only scene in the movie that does kind of break the realism for a little bit and mm-hmm. even then it's it's very slight how it does it, right it's just that this uh the broom kind of will move on its own a little bit sometimes but you could always, you can also just rationalize that as that's just what turbo is imagining yeah um they'll they get a much more out of control with this in the sequel oh, which we'll the talk sequel. about but, yeah, the sequel. <laughs> but it's a yeah it's it's a very fun sequence and i i do want to um just because i didn't get a chance to, when you were talking earlier about their performance and how because they already knew each other um, neither of them are great actors. Again, that's for sure. And in fact, there's a, a, a dramatic scene in this movie later that requires uh, Shabadoo to kind of give up some dramatic line readings, which is pretty, pretty painful. Yeah. <laughs> but they are both super likable. And in particular, I think like Boogaloo Shrimp is like so charismatic and so likable in both these movies. Like it's like he's just, like um, he's very funny. And just like if you keep your eye on him during scenes, the little faces he's making and everything, how he's reacting to other characters I really like him. He feels like that kind of person you just want to be friends with. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm actually surprised he didn't become both of them. But even but Boogaloo Shrimp in particular, I'm surprised didn't get more movie stuff out of this. Yeah, like when I was watching this, Trev, like I was sitting there thinking, like, how could you know? And, and I don't know the power structure of of canon, and I don't know how much Menachem really sat down and watched. I know he lorded over these movies and had suggestions and demands of how they make them and stuff. But I don't know how much he. He really watched. He really perceptive of things, but I was thinking one hundred percent what you're thinking. I was like, how did they not, you know? Because he was very young. I think maybe Boogaloo was about sixteen when they filmed the first one. How did you not? And with his charisma and his ability and stuff, how did you not do it like a Ferris Bueller's Day Off type movie with Bu- mm-hmm. Boogaloo Shrimp? It would have been huge. Like if anything, I think you. I think you could have made a string of movies. I mean, yeah, like he was an amazing dancer, but like. 
I mean, even now, like when you see him, he just, you know, as a grown man, he just has a very like cartoony over the top, larger than life personality that translates to the screen, especially as a kid. He had a big time. Mm -hmm. Although he would go on to play one of the good uh, Bill and Ted robots in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. He did. And also Robo Urkel. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but again, like, 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 I mean, I never knew that was Boogaloo Shrimp. You know what I mean? No. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so anyway, like, I'd say the next wrinkle in the story, like, well, just real quick, my only criticism of this movie, Trev, is I don't know where this romance with, uh, with, uh, Shabadoo and, uh, Lucinda Dickey is, like, 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 I can never tell where it's stopping, where it's starting, like, I think they're yeah. gonna go romantic, like, 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 the, the, the romance storyline kind of really comes and goes throughout the movie. Yeah, because I, I know what you're about to talk about with the other wrinkle, and I, I feel like all, there's multiple things here that aren't resolved. But before we get to that, should we mention, because you, you, you teased it earlier, um, during the, the dance battles, the other big... Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, so the... Do you want to say it? So. Yeah, the, rap, the the I'm pretty sure he's credited as rap talker, mm-hmm. and that is uh, that is uh, Ice-T. He's, he's doing more of um, uh, the party rap style, where... Yeah where it's 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 less of a hip hop concert and it's more like you know it's not like the people in the club are look actually even looking at him it's more you know the DJ and him are just providing the sound f- for the the dancers to dance and battle to you know what i mean mm-hmm. this is his um his screen debut though mm-hmm. and i mean it's not that it even mattered at that time cuz people did not know Ice-T at this point no not at all he was just he probably was just Tracy back then but um, yeah. So Ice T and Ice T, like you know, I mean, we'll, when we get to part two, like he becomes a recurring character for some reason. But part two is really strange, where there's a, like a lot of recurring things that are there, but they're like downplayed to almost like background status. Yeah. And that's 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 I know Breaking Two is like a really big deal, and people talk about it, but I personally prefer Breaking One way more. Um, like I guess we should say Shabadoo lives in a garage for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really, didn't really know why other than, you know, it made sense. Uh, it was a good place for them to practice. You know, it made it convenient to stage the scenes. Um, so, yeah, the the next wrinkle that comes in is um, basically um, Lucinda Dickey uh, uh, Kelly. Or we should say she does get her rap name, just like Turbo Nose. I can't remember if we said it before, but she gets the name of Special K. Mm-hmm. which I found was interesting. So she gets an agent to help her, you know, get into productions and stuff. Cause I mean, you got to understand like, like she's not really trying to do the, I mean, I don't know why they call this, but they kind of, don't they always refer to it as street dancing in this film, Trev? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Street dancing. Yeah. There's no real career to be made like as a quote unquote street dancer. That's just stuff they do at the little battles and they do it, um, you know, public, uh, little parks and stuff just for fun. So she's still trying to maintain, uh, her career that she's aspiring to, to be a classically trained dancer, you know, in productions and whatnot. So she, she meets an agent, she gets an agent and it's the very charming, very handsome, very young, uh, Christopher McDonald. Yep. Shooter McGavin himself rocking yeah. a, uh, like a perm mullet. Yep. Yep. Big time. And I gotta say like, I want to say that I enjoy Christopher McDonald's performance in this, uh, just because I like him. And like, but like, I was really like with this character, I was on my edge, on the edge of my seat, truck Because like, I was like waiting for the 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 shoe to drop. And, and it was this just my perception, or did you pick this up too? But they always kind of like 
hinted there that like like I never understood if he was trying to be unprofessional and get like a personal relationship going with her or not. Like I, I'm, I'm going to push that a little bit further. And I was actually going to say, I actually had this in my notes where I, this is where, you know, for a movie as simple and silly as this, I was like, I almost feel like you need to give this movie credit because I actually think the James character is, is actually somewhat complex character because I think at the beginning, he's very much sold as like a, um, not like a complete sleazeball, but somebody who has like, um, you know, I think he definitely has a thing for Kelly and he sees an opportunity and he's definitely trying to sidle up to her a little bit more. And then when she first explains that he's involved, she's involved in the street dancing world, he's very apprehensive about it. Um, she takes him to the club and then he sees the three of them perform together and then he sees the potential of it. But even then he kind of convinces her like, well, you don't want to hang out with them tonight, right? You want to come hang out with me. Yeah. But the, then the, there actually is a change that there's like a twist that happens with this character to when he then invites them all to his house just kind of being nice, I think, again, I think he's just still really focusing on on Kelly. But at the party, Ozone and Turbo are kind of looked down upon, and then they find out that they're actually going to be competing against her old boss, the one who tried to sexually assault her. And he kind of like, yeah, he's at the party too, and James actually picks up on the fact that Kelly's like kind of afraid of him or kind of skeeved up by him. And he starts insulting her and her friends. And that's actually like a character turning point for James where he suddenly becomes very defensive of them. Yeah. And you actually see that then for the rest of the movie, he's actually kind of going out of his way to actually try and help them get jobs. He's very offended when people won't hire them and won't even see them. And I was like, well, that's actually kind of interesting. They're doing something interesting with this character where he never again, like really hits on her or tries to go Uh for it. He really becomes more invested in the three of them as a team. And I I liked that. And it's nice to see Christopher McDonald get to play that too. Cause as you said, maybe it's just cause him, you're, you're expecting him to be bad the whole time. Exactly. And what was funny was, um, when he turns good, and he's doing a lot of stuff for them. He's pulling a lot of strings. He's making a lot of phone calls. I don't know why, but this being a, a movie that you think would be, um, you know, aimed at really kids, uh, like all of a sudden, like once he turns good, he becomes an on-screen smoker. Did you notice? That? <laughs> yeah. And there was even like there was even like which I didn't believe this for a second, but there's like one scene kind of like midway through where uh, Shabadoo's kind of down in the dumps or something in his garage, and, and Turbo comes by. And, like, he starts smoking for a second. He takes, like, one drag off the cigarette and then he puts it out. But I'm like, was there, like, some kind of weird cigarette product placement in this movie? Because, like, I didn't believe for a second that a, that a guy with the, uh, you know, the physical, like, you know, acumen that, that Shabadoo had, like, and the hours of dancing and the sweating. Like, I didn't think this guy would be lighting up a cigarette at any point. I thought that was ridiculous. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, so, like, I was really, like, the Christopher McDonald character, I was really, like, oh, like, this is gonna, like, I was, like, this is gonna be the bad guy of the movie, but no, like, like you said, it, it, it does, you know, it's complex and turns around, and, uh, basically, I would say the last major turning point of the story is that, uh, yeah, the, the James character, Christopher McDonald, he introduces them the, the, the idea that there's this, um, this contest going on, and, and, like, before we move on to that, you know, Shabadoo instantly, like, uh, he pulls back, like, I'm not doing this, I don't dance, dance for a contest, I don't dance for it, and then, like, Kelly's really, like, she doesn't get it, she's like, you put in all this hard work, like, why wouldn't you want your talent to be seen, why wouldn't you want to be recognized, and he actually says, you know, come with me, I want to show you something, and they go back to, like, the beach or some area where there's, like, a lot of people crowded around watching a, a street dancer, and it's actually this, 
this young boy and like like i gotta say like this scene to me came out like out of the blue in the movie and like it really kind of touched me there's a scene or this this young guy i mean he's probably probably uh boogaloo shrimp's age probably 15 16 but he has a, a condition with his legs like a birth condition where like you can tell they're smaller and and he can stand up and walk a little bit but it, but you know he also has crutches to move around and like and he's and he's actually really good he's a really good dancer and he's he's doing it and he kind of does this thing where he kind of like spins around his legs are just like swinging free and whatever and then like and like he's like this is why i do it like like he sees like like when you see this 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 kid perform dancing on the street the way he is like you see the freedom and the joy and it's like yeah you can't really measure that you can't really compete that compete use this in a competition you can't like bring that sort of joy and love for something that you're doing you know into like the business world you know what i mean so like what did you think about that scene trev because like i thought it was actually like a really good scene in this movie no it is really good it definitely sells the point it is one of those moments where as a viewer you find yourself wishing you could step into the screen and like talk to the characters because like Kelly never puts up the argument you want her to make at that point, which is the argument of, that I would imagine was also something that probably was said to Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp in terms of doing this movie and having and like that, you know, that argument of like, why should we make this movie with this like white girl, you know, and everything uh, is that, well, the reason you do this is because this will bring more exposure to the art form and more kids in other places will see it and realize what it is and be able to then just do it themselves on the street. You know, that's all you're just waiting for Kelly to say is like. Yes, by let's let's become famous so that we can introduce this to more kids who need it. Um, but no, I do like the I do like the idea, and I like the scene for sure. Yeah, it was really good. Is it like in all honesty, like other than probably Boogaloo with the with the broom outside, like it actually kind of was my favorite dancing because it kind of took me like so by surprise that it, a scene like this would be in the movie. And it, it, I mean, I don't want to like oversell it. Like you're not going to be moved by tears by it, but it's like. It's a very understated but very powerful scene, and I really liked it. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, there's kind of, like, a little bit of a blue period, I guess you would say, now the movie goes into where, like, like you know, they're not really hanging out with Kelly anymore, and then Turbo's kind of working on Ozone, saying, like, I know you miss her and all this kind of stuff. And eventually they kind of come around to do to do the, the competition, the contest, and um, that's pretty much, like, the third act wrap-up, I, sh- I should say. And I gotta say, you know, for a movie... Like, as kind of loose as this whole plot is that we've been talking about, like, I have to say that, like, for this particular movie, I have to say it works. I don't, I don't think the, the, I don't know, I don't think the plot works quite as good in part two, but I think for this movie, it, it works in, in terms of putting it together a simple story, but a sor- story that has, like, good progression and good character progression and wraps up in a good way. So, I mean, pretty much all that's left is, like, the final like contest like like what did you think uh because i have some notes about the final kind of contest dance thing what did you think about the wrap-up trip well i think i mean so obviously what happens is funny right i mean like it's 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 easy it's like um the kind of scene you can show someone and it can just be kind of like a viral thing because it's it, the idea that these stuffy white you know old people are like no you can't dance here and that they're just kind of instantly won over is is always kind of um not super realistic, but kind of silly, but but it works for the film. I will say, I don't know if this is what you mean. I do think the final dance they do is maybe the most unimpressive dance sequence of yeah. the entire film. I was like, really, like, that's it? Like, after all of this? And it's really, like, you wish you wish it went out on, like, a higher note. Um, but, I mean, I like the sequence. And, and uh, to jump ahead just a little bit, to kind of tie into what you're saying with the simplicity and everything about this film. And, again, I believe this probably does come from – I not I don't. it's not like I believe Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp were able to have a lot of um, – 
you know, impact on the writing of this or, or, or a lot of clout. But hearing Shabadoo talk in every interview and how much like this art form actually means to him and how much of a positive figure he is in terms of giving back to the community and everything. I do really like the end of this film where it shows that they've kind of gotten the show now. And we even see that Electro Rock is part of their dance troupe now. Like they've kind of invited their their rivals in and it's like uh, allowing everybody to, you know, kind of partake in the success. Uh, it's it's just a good like feel good ending overall. Yeah, like the like my note about the whole kind of like final dance competition because like first you have the thing where like her her evil whatever former teacher you know he kind of like puts the fix in to, to to make the judges you know belligerent and they're like oh we won't allow street dancing and I mean as much as I love this movie um, you know for how inclusive it is uh, like like it also. There's, like, it's weird, because, like, it's not a preachy movie, and it never really addresses racism head-on. Like, you never hear anybody talk about racism. You never hear anybody say a racist slur. They do go to that barbecue joint where it seems like those guys are being pretty racist. Oh, yeah, I I totally forgot about that. Like, there is just a weird, I guess it's just a filler scene. I totally forgot Mm -hmm. about that, where they're just, like, you know, after they do something, they're like, oh, we need to get something to eat. And they go to, like, a barbecue, which, like, I don't even believe that this place could exist in Los Angeles, even in the early 80s. But it's, like, a country-western barbecue place where, like, all of a sudden people are, like, confronting them. <laughs> like, like, we don't approve of your lifestyle. Like I said, like, nobody really comes out and says stuff, but it's just, there's there's a lot of red in between the lines. There's a lot of code go, be, being spoken back and forth in this movie. But when but when they do the contest thing, like I was confused, Trev, because like I didn't realize that was the contest. Like I thought, like that. I thought what they were doing was I thought they were just auditioning to get into the real contest, and then I thought we were going to see the contest later. But like, but it's kind of murky to me, or at least maybe I wasn't paying attention well enough when I watched it. But I guess really when they pass the audition and they get rated the best dancers by the judges, then that then allows them to put on their own showcase show at the theater. Yeah, kind of well, what it, it, was. Even, it even seems like they get to like reinvent the show because one of the things that the judges say to them is like, "This is we're we're only like looking at you know uh, jazz dancers," and then we see that like then the show is called like street jazz, yeah. so it's like they were like, "Oh, okay, well we can we can evolve this." And another rug that got pu- kind of pulled out from under me because like you said, it's, like it's very impressive. They incorporate all the the former battle em- enemies and even the, like some children and stuff get incorporated to the street jazz performance at the end. Um. Which, 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 looking back, because I then went and watched the Lionel Richie uh, video for all night long uh, to see uh, Boogaloo and uh, Shabadoo in it, and like, like the street jazz performance, like everything, the set, everything is very reminiscent of that music video. So I'm kind of curious which one they shot first, honestly. But uh, like, like I kind of took it when I finished watching this movie that like they had like their own show like they were going to be performing it for a while and making money off of it but it turns out like that that was that what we saw at the end of the movie the sequel i don't know if it's a retcon or i don't know if i just kind of misinterpreted it but that they they literally just did that show like one time and that was it you know what i mean yeah, or did, at least it did not have a very long run for sure. Well, well, they show the poster on her wall in part two, and like it literally, because I I, I kind of rewound it and freeze framed it. It literally like they have just like a date that it that oh, okay, it, yeah. it and like it's not even like a date range. It's just like whatever, like August seventh, eight 
p.m. like whatever it said but yeah so yeah so like that's pretty much the wrap-up i mean it's very good well we speaking wrap-up though we should talk about how, how the movie wraps itself up too with a uh, an ending uh summary of the film where they replayed like the greatest hits of the film at the end which i thought was yeah. interesting and then it ends with a little like tease for the sequel and i have to wonder i don't know if you know this goat was that something that was added later on home video or was that in the theaters because Everything I always hear about Breaking 2, and even you still hear some of the cast say this today, is that because the first one was like a surprise success, they quickly threw together a sequel. But this one ends saying, like, come back soon for Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo. And yeah. it's like, well, wait, like, what's what's the deal here? Was that was that originally there or was that put on later? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Like, I, 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 I didn't... I didn't read anything about that being, being added or whatever later. Mm-hmm. Um, I just read that part two was insanely rushed and like i think they made a huge mistake honestly in in rushing part two the way they did because like not only did the quality suffer but the box office suffered um i think in a way because it's like i think if they would have done that thing where they would have released part two like exactly one year later but they released it like what was it eight or nine months later like yeah i mean we should say like so break-in comes out in may and break-in two comes out in december of the same year yep and it's just kind of weird because if if there was more of a cohesive plan, like you know, you 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 think that they would have like probably got the you know, and I don't know all the, I mean it's canon films, you know, anything could have wild could have happened behind behind the scenes, whatever. But like, if I was going to roll, if I had this hit film and I was going to roll straight into the sequel and that like I would at the very least make sure that I had the same director coming back, which they did in Sam Furstenberg, who directed Ninja Three Domination, took over Breaking Two. And then also too, like they tried to pull some like real fucky shit and they tried to um Monacum wanted to replace Shabadoo, which like I don't even get how there could be a breaking two without Shabadoo. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so what do you what what is your thoughts on the quick turnaround going into Breaking Two, Trev? No, I mean I agree. So ultimately it's interesting because you never know if like uh, if they'd taken more time if it would have been a hit. You know, you could, this is all speculation, anyways. And the interesting thing is, so obviously Breaking Two is a is a failure, especially compared to the first one, right? I think it turns a little bit of a profit, but definitely a much smaller profit, um, and enough that they decided to like not make any more. And we'll even talk about like the ramifications on Lucinda Dickey's career in general. But also, though, Breaking Two does kind of enter the cultural lexicon in a way that the first film doesn't. <laughs> and I know that's yeah. just kind of partly like the name, you know, the, the so uh, not for great reasons. Right. But it does have a legacy in that, you know, electric boogaloo become kind of becomes the comedic short term for an unnecessary or silly sequel, you know? Yeah. And ultimately I'm sure you think, I mean, both these movies were on TV when I was a kid, but breaking two really was the one that was, just seemed like it was on cable all the time. Yeah. And I don't know if that was I don't know if that was them trying to like recoup some of this or whatever or trying to like really push it out there and make it more of a hit but not that it matters once it's on cable but this is definitely the one I saw more as a as a kid and ultimately even the storyline right is a, is a storyline that now you see um people parody a lot and it's redone in fact I was uh, I was talking with my friend last night we were talking about how you know the idea of trying to make this into a franchise we're talking about like the step up films are actually a franchise it's kind of like the modern equivalent yeah and i think it's like step up four or something has a has a very similar storyline where they're trying to save like a community center from getting turned into like a parking lot or something it's like oh yeah. that's just that's just taken from breaking too like that's in <laughs> exactly. many shows of many shows have done their parody episodes of that so 
yeah, you know, ultimately it's not a great movie. It's, you know, it's rushed and everything, but it, it's hung on. It's become more of a cult film than the first one. Yeah, I, I think a little bit of the the reception, I, like we should say, uh, I looked at the numbers the other day, like the first break-in cost a couple million. I want to say it grossed like around $35 million. This one cost about the same, but it only grossed about $14 million, so it grossed less than half of the, the first one. And, I, you know, I don't... I don't know what the uh, promotion, the production, whatever. Um, I do know uh, maybe a deciding factor besides the movie being so rushed was the first film was put out by MGM. And the second one was part of, I don't know if it was like an ongoing deal or a one-time deal or what, but the second one was actually put out by uh, Columbia TriStar. Mm-hmm. So it was a different studio distributing it. And also, they, it, they pretty much just like, put it in as like they're like a christmas release so I, yeah as i say like these seem more like summer films too yeah so that's what i'm saying like if they just would have held on to like the falling spring or something i think they would have done a lot better and you yeah, know I, if you if you allowed the first one to be on cable for a while and get people really like you know more into those characters because the thing this this is um a direct continuation of the same characters and even though the first one's kind of a hit people don't these aren't people don't know these characters well enough yet to be excited just a few months later to see them again you know well exactly and and two it's just like i mean i think we we've, we've kind of touched on it uh, in past shows trev but 1984 was in a uh, it was an amazingly packed year for yeah, like I'm literally sure. like 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 half the movies that we think of as 80s classics were actually 1984 movies like it's crazy so I, th- I think I, th- I think they just got slaughtered at the box office. With yeah, the <laughs> fact that the fact that the first one was able to be a hit with everything else coming out in '84 is pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. So basically, we roll into this one, and the, um, I'd say most of my criticism with this particular movie, don't get me wrong, I still found it enjoyable. Any excuse you can get to get Lucinda Dickey, Shabadoo, and Boogaloo Shrimp together, I'm all for it. But um. Basically, the setup is a little weird where, like, she's kind of disconnected from them again because she's been gigging, being a part as, like, you know, a background dancer in a show or whatever. And uh, they're kind of, like, off doing their own thing. And, like, like, I guess we should say, too, that, like, there's a huge difference in this movie in terms of, like, this is basically a musical with dancing. Like it, Yeah. So that's very, very early on you realize that this film is – giving up the reality of the first film and going into full like fantasy musical territory. Cause there's a sequence early on where they start dancing to the streets of LA and then everybody starts dancing. It's yeah. very, like we said, it's very La La Land. Um, the meter maid starts dancing and a construction crew starts dancing. There's a scene later in a hospital where doctors and nurses are dancing <laughs> during surgery and patients are throwing their crutches aside and doing flips through the hallways. And it's just like, Oh, okay. We're in that kind of movie now. So it's, yeah, that's what's, that's what's striking about it. I think it's, it's even more striking when you realize, like we said, when you realize this movie came out just a few months after, the fact that it's such a different tone is kind of like, yeah. whoa, they were really they were really going for something here, huh? And as you said, even though it's a sequel, there's suddenly some retconning, there's suddenly some odd things, like, um, as you said, the fact that suddenly they reveal that Kelly's rich. Yeah. Uh, when she does come back to the neighborhood, she is, this is strange, too, because they talk about how she's been away, and like they're like, well, we don't know when Kelly's going to come back, but when she shows up, she just walks right up to uh, uh, Ozone and kisses him. Like, yeah. But the thing, like you said, the, the, the last movie you've kind of forgot to ever put a button on that relationship. So yeah. even that's like, whoa, whoa, wait, now they are a couple, but they haven't seen each other in a long time. Um, 
one of the Electro Rock members from the first film is now part of their crew, uh, Pop and Taco. You can always see him like with their crew, but then there's like a new version of Electro Rock, and that that woman is still with them. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of strange things going on in this, but <laughs> yeah. So it's like really weird because like yeah, it's, it's like I, I could only imagine if you were a kid. Especially, you know, definitely somebody... I mean, I think these movies appeal to any kids of any whatever, but especially if you're somebody who is kind of into, like, the more, I would say, authentic, you know, pieces of the of the dance culture. If you were, you know, if, if you were doing it yourself or you're, you're into the style, the electro... You know, and electro boogaloo gets... Um, you know, made fun of, but that was really supposed to be a reference to this particular uh, song or song style, music style that kind of got dropped out of the movie. But yeah, I can imagine like if you were one of those kids who were really like big into the dance scene and everything, and you loved the movie because it was like a you know as much as it was a Hollywoodized movie and you know fictional whatever. Like when you watch that first movie, like everything about the way Shabadoo and uh, Boogaloo Shrimp dance, like, it's 100% authentic, it's 100% fresh, it's sort of surreal. And then all of a sudden, like, it, with this one, it's like, it would I would think for those kids who are really into that stuff, like, it's like a shock to the system because in, in, in uh, Shabadoo, uh, I watched that Zoom meeting about it, like, he was very upfront that he didn't know, he didn't like this movie at all. I mean, it was a bad experience because first they tried to replace him and then they, the guy they were trying to get wasn't nearly as good of a dancer, apparently. So they they caved in and reluctantly gave Shabadoo his his role back, and then like he said, like Menachem just uh, uh, wanted to pay homage to the '40s musicals, and it's like, don't get me wrong, like I love the hospital scene in particular, and I love it, but 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 by that point, it is like the Step Up movies, which I enjoy. I don't have anything against them, but it's just like, yeah, you can't. Like, like to me, it would have been fine to go this corny if it was, like, breaking three or breaking four. But to do it right away in the next film, let alone release it in the same year, I don't know. It it, it, it kind of was a fuck move, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Although, I will say, like, the one super memorable sequence we get out of it... I mean, I guess, like, there's a lot of memorable stuff in this, actually. But, but the one that I will give, like, some credit to, and it's interesting for us to talk about just is, you know, this show, getting into 80s movie trivia is the scene with Boogaloo Shrimp dancing, uh, uh, like defying gravity and dancing up the walls and yeah. everything. That seems really cool. Um, I don't like that the, again, it's this thing where you, when you play sequences like that, the, the difference between that scene and the broom sequence in the first one is that nobody else enters the broom sequence. So again, you can play it as it's a fantasy. At the end of this sequence, the girl that he has a crush on comes into the room and is reacting to the room turning as well. Yeah. And it's like, well, all right, now what's going on here? But um, interestingly enough, the way they filmed that scene was that they actually borrowed the spinning room set from Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, I, I, I knew it was when I saw it. There was just something about it, Trev. I knew yeah. it was that same shit. Yep. Yeah, it was that It was that thing. They uh, they actually got it. It, was, they, uh, it hadn't been disassembled or for whatever reason. It was still there, and they were able to, to use it. And I read in the trivia that somewhere in that like room or in that shack as like a little tribute to that is like a, there's a picture of Freddie's glove on the wall, but I, I really looked for it yesterday and I could not see it. So I'm not sure if that's not true or if it's just kind of buried somewhere, but, uh, but yeah, that's, so that's how they accomplished that. There is like w- w- the one thing that kind of ruins the illusion of that Trev, and I don't know if you picked it up on your viewing, 
but there's like up in the left corner there's like a gap in between like the wall and like where the ceiling starts so you can actually see outside so like when the mm-hmm. room is normal it's not a problem you just oh there's a little bit of daylight coming in here but when the thing starts spinning you can tell the you know, what what you're seeing through that little hole was changing unfortunately yeah. it kind of gives the effect away but it's like i like that scene but at the same time like i felt like i've seen it before <laughs> yeah, yeah no it's taken from you know like fred astaire had done yeah. that i believe or, or or maybe gene kelly i can't remember one of them does that in one of the films that they had been in but uh but yeah that's the thing is like you said that it's this one is paying more homage to old school musicals and yeah. i don't know i mean it's that not that that's a bad call like you said it's just an interesting call to yeah. go right into it on the second film yeah i think they kind of sold out the authenticity of kind of what the the message of the first movie was and honestly if you, if you wanted to do that even like why not just not have this be breaking two and just do like a martin lewis kind of thing and have all three of these people play new characters and put them in a new setting and right and just not have it be a sequel i'd be all about that and like you said like you know they try to play it for a little bit in the first movie like there's almost like a love triangle between shabadoo uh kelly and um james uh, the agent and then like it never gets resolved either way so like you said like you ne- you never felt like she really ended up with shabadoo and then they just like yeah like the threads are picked up and like i like her her being rich like i wouldn't have a problem with it if like cuz cuz they show her i mean she has her own apartment and everything in the but in the first movie but she's clearly struggling she's clearly working hard and like i would i wouldn't mind it so much if it was like a thing where like they kind of like if it was a it was a secret that got revealed but when the movie just starts and she's just sitting by the like which by the way i don't know why that shot is like her imdb picture but she's just sitting with her legs spread open poolside talking to her lame ass like waspy dad you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it, like even me i like i was pulled i was like wait what she's like a millionaire like or it comes from a rich family like it was so weird yeah and basically like i don't even really know how to to uh to uh really condense the synopsis of this but basically you have three threads here you have kind of this loose whatever thing about uh kelly's about to go away to paris to you know be in the show that she was cast in be a dancer and then also you have the ongoing romance with uh boogaloo and this girl who who uh i don't know why it seems like her voice is dubbed did you pick that up Trev? it might be yeah it's, it's it's like it almost seemed like a guy doing like a, a cartoony like oh yeah so like you know like a woman's voice or something it was weird um, and then basically like the major subplot is, uh, there's this place called miracles, um, which is just this huge, um, uh, like according to the, um, the commentary track, uh, Sam Furstenberg said like it used to be a huge synagogue. It was one of the first synagogues. The whole neighborhood was one of the first, uh, originally one of the first Jewish neighborhoods in all of uh, America, supposedly, especially the West coast. And it's, I mean, this place is like massive. Like it's, it's, it, it, it does it a disservice to call it like a community center. Cause when you think community center, you think like a little rinky dink building, but this thing has like steps and pillars. And I mean, it just, it's, it's insane. And, uh, pretty much everything's going on there from Shabadoo, um, or I should say ozone teaching young kids how to dance. And then there's also a, a, a older man there who uh, teach kids boxing and it's like, they really like uh posit that this entire community like all the children all the whatever like they don't really play it up too much like they're disadvantaged but you kind of get the idea like hey if these kids aren't here being involved in positive stuff they're going to end up on the streets doing bad stuff Mm -hmm. 
yeah. And so the 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 main through line of the movie is the fact that this like evil developers, he's targeted that building to uh he wants like that spot for his his shopping mall he's trying to build, and so they have to raise the money to save it because they're given a thirty day grace period to yeah. if they can raise what is the amount like fifty thousand I think or something. It, it's like, like two hundred thousand. I yeah, got like I, like I was expecting it to be like twenty five grand, which I mean it stuck out to me because then you know you get the montage of them trying to raise money and yeah. the ways they're raising money are you know kind of it's like selling flowers they're picking on the street and stuff, and then they have a thing where they have like the little kids do a car wash and i was thinking is you have lucinda dickey and this other girl and like in their like aerobics outfits you're not yeah. you're, you're picking the wrong people to wash these cars if you want to make some money here exactly it's, it's really weird. and we, we we should say too like uh especially with breaking like the the really just the 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 classy wholesome charm of uh lucinda dickey but like at the same time, like they're not afraid to put her in some like barely covering some nipples aerobic outfits at certain times. Well, we, I was gonna, I, I thought we were just talking about this at the end of both of them, but I, yeah. I will say so. I'm, what I'm guessing this is the case for you as well. As I said at the beginning of the show, Lucinda Dickey was definitely like a um, a childhood crush of mine. Yeah. And I think if you go look at uh, YouTube videos of like clips from this film or whatever, you'll see a lot of comments underneath of people saying like, "Oh man, she's like the first girl that like I, you know, was really into when I was a kid." I'm I'm putting this nicer than they say on YouTube. Yeah, obviously. yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, I I think we've mentioned this before. We watched some other movie on the show, but it's because of movies like this and Lucinda Dickey in particular, and some other you know like some of the music videos at the time where it's like so out of fashion now. But I still find myself like really attracted to that like those kind of aerobic outfits and everything. <laughs> oh and like, yeah, those kind of haircuts like that just to me still seems hot because these were the girls that like as I was coming of age were like the sex symbols. And I think, yeah, a big part of these movies is just Lucinda Dickey looks amazing in, in both of them. And the outfits are ridiculous, but they're also very form-fitting, very tight, and uh, very sexy. Dude, if you're into aerobic outfits, and it blows me away every time I watch the movie, and I'm not ashamed to admit it's pretty much the main reason I watch the movie, you have to become a, a, a in and out uh, you know, maestro 100 percent fan of perfect with jamie lee curtis oh yeah okay yeah i mean i'm, I'm very aware of perfect oh my god the outfit she has in that like mm-hmm. like i mean the the height of you know people talk about uh the scene in true lies or whatever and all that kind of which i totally believe me i get it but that's nothing compared to when she teaches the Roman <laughs> classes in perfect like like i honestly i'll, I'll go as far like like me personally i would say just this is not that anybody cares about this but me personally my favorite most uh just overall beautiful woman in film ever was pam greer but as far as the one individual like i don't think any woman's looked more classically you know whatever you want to call it attractive sexy whatever in a film is jamie lee and uh perfect i mean I, I can't imagine probably like I I mean she was always thin and stuff but like talk about having just the right amount of muscle but not going overboard like that movie's amazing but yeah but yeah like I know exactly what you mean and there's just something about like you know I mean not that anybody should uh you know sculpt their bodies to the uh the the whatever whims and tastes of what we like but I have to say like I when I look back at 80s movies I really like the positive body image that women are allowed to portray a lot of times because it's like there is a lot of like, you know, athlete quality in shape women. But like like I like that back then, like women were allowed to still have hips and thighs yeah. and whatever, you know, it's just I, I guess you would just say the more natural look and like. 
I mean, there's like women now who like they work out so hard, but like, like they almost like in a weird way almost become too buff that they kind of look like anorexic. If you know what I mean. Well, let's think of that. This is like hard to kind of put into words, but I think it would, like there's something about Lucinda Dickey where in these films I was thinking about how I don't know that she would be I don't know that a studio today would look at her and be like, that's a sex symbol to put right. in the to put in a lead role. But she clearly is, right? And like every yeah. boy had like a crush on Lucinda Dickey like yeah. in this decade. And like yeah, so it's just it's a shame that Hollywood decided that there was one body type and one even just kind of facial look yeah. and form that they had to go with. And it's like, I don't know, that there's more variety. And also I was just saying like why I um this day, I still like uh, oftentimes uh, women with like short haircuts, and I think it's the Lucinda Dickey in the Breaking films, and then Terry in Friday Thirteenth Part uh, Two, which is like this like one two punch on me when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, and also too, it's funny too because I know exactly what you mean with the with you know in general people kind of recoil when women get shorter haircuts, but it's like it's it's important not just when a woman gets a short haircut it has to be a good like a well done yeah. short haircut like yeah. well styled well cut cut right everything like that actually her hair is is better in breaking than it is in breaking too oh yeah i agree for sure but yeah but but so basically you know we come down to you know i don't have a problem with these basic storylines um you know in these films but like yeah, this this it gets I don't know like this gets like a little weird with this storyline where like they're constantly trying to to stop the uh, demolition of miracles. That's the name of the community center, and like even gets to the point where they're putting themselves. Like I, I'm not gonna lie, like it's you know I mean granted this all happened years after they filmed this movie, but when when they're doing like the bulldozer scene and Boogaloo Shrimps like in front of the things and he's whatever. Like I almost like felt like some weird you know, Tiananmen Square vibes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I kind of wish they could have avoided that, but I mean, well, then you have the one of the when they do their like big dance routine at the end, like uh, the three of them are wearing like a communist outfit with yeah. <laughs> those like red berets on, or I think it's oh, all right. Maybe there's some subtle social commentary here from Furstenberg that we don't we're not smart enough to get. Yeah, and I guess I should say we kind of skip past the part of the movie where it happened, in, but like there's a part where where Kelly because now she is rich apparently. Uh, she brings uh, Ozone and Turbo home to meet her parents and, and her sudden ex-fiance, which we never knew anything about. Yeah, dressed and, like Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, like this guy. I'm sorry I didn't look up his name, but I know this guy. He's like been in a bunch of other movies. I want to say he might even be in Choppy Mall, if I'm thinking of the right guy. But uh, he kind of plays like your typical waspy, whatever, yuppie type guy. And like it's kind of weird because like... There's like this weird thing where it seems like him and her parents somehow think that there's that she's still together with this guy. Yeah, they introduce him as her fiance. Yeah, but like then she's clearly got at least. I mean, it's not even in this movie. It's still kind of ill-defined, but she at least has some kind of romance with Shabadoo in this film. So it's just again like you're you're putting the character into a place to be somewhat or come off at least appearance-wise more. Uh, morally compromised kind of it's kind of just some weird you know i don't know how much of that was just because they were running the gun in but like i actually t- got pretty like offensive and again like they kind of try and repeat the um kind of arc that james the agent played by christopher mcdonald in the first film he does not return he had a scheduling conflict apparently where he which is t- too bad because I'm, I'm curious to see how that character would have fit in this time like if he would be like helping them or would they have you know what, what would they have done with him but well, I was curious if he was going to be like the fiance or something. Like, if that role was originally what he was supposed to come back in, or, or like, if not, like, yeah, how he would fit in. But, like, they kind of repeat the same arc with her parents that they did with James in the first movie, where, like, 
where like he's just like 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 as much as James was like all oh, these street people, these street dancers or whatever, dismissing them, not liking them, not want to be around them. Like I feel like the that Kelly's parents, like I mean, just like uncomfortably to the point of just like they just seem like blatantly racist. Yeah, but it's okay because they turn on a dime later just by seeing them on TV for a couple minutes and going, you know what? These people really do like to fight for what they believe in. <laughs> well, I like, like them now. Yeah, it's not even like it's not even like they're disgusted because like uh, Ozone and Turbo show up in their hip hop outfits and stuff to dinner. It's 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 like it's like you know when they bring up the thing about the 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 miracles place and how they're trying to save it and stuff. Like, doesn't the dad say some real repugnant shit? Like, oh, the, the, those people and those places, they're not good for anything anyway. Like, they should tear it down or whatever. Like, it just... Yeah. It, it, it like... The fiancé I know says something where he's like, you know, there's no helping those people. They just, like, you know... And I think the dad says somehow they'll, they'll use the money for drugs and things. Like, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, why should I... That's what it was. He's like, why should I donate? They'll just use the money for drugs and shit. Like, and, like, when you... I mean, obviously, like, he's just a, a, a judgmental, probably racist. You know, and, like, you know me, Trev. Like, I'm not the first person to say, this is racist, that's racist. And, like, they do use the code words in these movies. They don't try to, like... But, I mean, to me, this was, like, even more than the first film. This was kind of like yikes you're kind of like you know like I, like i watched this movie like especially coming off the first one and i did i did take a little break i didn't watch them back to back the way you did so like i had like a two-day period in between the two movies but i was like damn this is like as much as i'm enjoying seeing the three of these people back together again they're in like the most unenjoyable storyline <laughs> There possibly could be, you know what I mean. I, I will say that. So you mentioned that I was, I, I could say this to the end, but I'll say it now. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen these films and is listening to us, and we're we're talking into watching them, which I do think both, you know, should be seen. But oh, yeah. I will say, don't double bill them. Don't watch them yeah. both in, in one night because that really makes two. Because two kind of meanders a bit more in the middle, um, yeah. and it's just like not as strong of a film when you watch them right in a row the faults of two really kind of grate on you a little bit more. I think if you do take some time off between them and it's more like, Oh, I'm getting to visit these characters. I had fun with last week or something. You'll, you'll enjoy two more, but it, it's a rough double bill in one night. Yeah, it is. So basically the movie wraps up with, with their heaven, basically. I mean, it's kind of like a telethon, but I mean, it's not literally a telethon. Like they're kind of just like performing outside the place and they have it. The place is all painted, all wacky and like just fun stuff's going on. So like, basically like the the i would say like like within a matter of minutes like a news crew shows up and starts documenting like hey these young people are trying to save their place and this is their home away from home and this is where you know so kind of the like wouldn't you say in the course of like five minutes the story hits the airwave with the reporter of what's going on and then all of a sudden city hall is there to say no 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 we're not going to approve the shopping center we're going to and then all of a sudden the evil land developer who wanted like everybody like run over and shit all of a sudden he's like forced to kind of like bend to the will of public whatever like it just kind of wraps up like so quick or whatever yeah and it wraps up in the wrong order too because they have that guy who is the one trying to like tear it down he gives like a he they basically force him on tv to donate a bunch yeah um but then they still need to raise more and i think yeah. they should reverse that like he should have been the guy who has to give like the final amount right. because once he's once he's already been humiliated on tv and donated then you know the community center is not really in any danger anymore so it's right. like you're not super invested in if they can raise the rest of the money and ultimately they put that on 
the giving Kelly's dad like the final like um, baby face turn. It's like I don't care about this racist <laughs> asshole. <laughs> I, know. I know, like I I know exactly because it's like when her dad shows up, he's like, oh, I I, I saw you on TV and I, it changed my mind of you know what's going on here and all that kind of thing and. And, the, and, and he's like he's like dancing in the crowd and he gives them the check and they're like oh fifty thousand dollars and i'm just kind of like well like they've already like city hall and shit has already said like they're not going to yeah. build the shopping center so it's all but we do get the uh we do get the return of ice t who was actually introduced yeah. as ice t this time yeah he is he's not he's not just the rap talker he is ice t and he kind of like does like you know the party scene and and then at the end, like, and then this is like, this was my number one actual real beef with the way it wrapped up. And considering there was never any part three or anything, Trev, like, th- this ending, okay. So basically, the the, f- the film ends with a, you know, there's like, there's hundreds of people basically on the steps of this place and this show is going on. Everybody's dancing, having a good time. And then like the money comes in and gets saved. So we get, we get a lot of group shots of people hugging, saying, we did it. Yeah, we did it. There's a woman singing a song, and like Shabadoo, like he must have known her in real life because like he's all over her, like it, like all of a sudden he's like in love with this like lady. Uh, Kelly is off like hugging like her dad or whoever, and like and like Turbo, like he 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 uh, he hugs the boxing coach, and then he, I think he's with his girlfriend or something later. There's there's like the movie ends with like balloons are shot up into the air, and this lady singing this this upbeat positive energy song. But there's like no wrap up between our three main characters, like really yeah. at all. Like it, it just ends so quick and shitty. Yep, I agree. Um, it, like the whole the the um, Shabadoo uh, Lucinda Dickey relationship in these two films is just like never defined well enough and never like resolves the way you want to see it resolve. Uh, yeah. I mean, we do get them like she decides to stay and not go to Paris for them and everything. But yeah, you want them, you want these two to be embracing at the end and. Especially why also kind of shouldn't there be a scene where like the dad like apologizes directly to him and kind of accepts him? I don't know. It's just it's it's too quick of a wrap up considering, as you said, obviously a lot of work went into it because there's so many extras and stuff. But yeah, it is. So I mean, I like I like I I know like I sounded like overly negative about Breaking Two. Which which I'm really not. It's it's worth. No, we didn't talk about yeah. like the thing about working too is because it's a stupider film that that gives it a certain charm for sure. Yeah. Like we didn't talk about some of the sillier stuff. Like there's a sequence when they go to the hospital and just for no reason the 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 girl that um, Ozone likes is just like in a closet in the room and it's like never explained. She like walks out of a closet. Oh, that's 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 the best where they go to because uh, there's this whole thing where Boogaloo Shrimp he tries to steal like a, a equipment case from these construction workers. And uh, they chase him, and he falls down some some stairs, and he's got a broken arm, broken leg. Which, by the way, his both his arm and leg cast disappear for the finale. So all of a sudden, yeah, he's, he's just he's magically healed. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, they they like Shabadoo has to go get uh, Kelly, and he and he's, he's like, oh, you got to come see him. And she's like, but I got to leave for my tour for Paris. But she goes to see him anyway. And yeah, like the girlfriend, the love interest, um, you know, a lot of people come, like like all the kids from the community center, uh, the older guy. Uh, from the community center like they all come and like that was the best part was when all of a sudden the girlfriend pop was hiding in the closet and, and like the older guy from the community center he says he says what 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 in the world what was she doing in there and then one of the small children at the foot of the bed says maybe she lives in there <laughs> And that's that's as much of an explanation as we get, so yeah. I guess we just I guess we just accept it. 
I mean, may, hey, may, that, I mean, maybe that little boy was right. Maybe she does yeah. live in there. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. Um, we also, I briefly mentioned it when we were talking about the last movie, but the, my probably favorite sequence in the film is the, um, the under the bridge battle between yeah. them and electro rock. So in this one, you know, electro, they're, they're hanging out at the community center and electro rock vandalizes the place. They like throw something, they throw like a spray can, a spray paint can window, or I'm uh, sorry, a can of spray paint through the window, I believe. Yeah. And, um, they go out there, and this is like the new iteration of Electro Rock, right? They have a new leader. So the, the girl's the same, but it's basically a bigger gang now. They drive a car that says Electro Rock, and they, they chase him to underneath a bridge. Um, and they proceed to, uh, you know, instead of having a, like a, the kind of rumble or fight you expect them to do, they just do like an unsanctioned dance off, yeah. complete with its own theme song, where they have a boombox ready to play a song called Combat. That if you listen to the lyrics, is basically explaining to you what this dance battle is and how it works. It's an amazing scene. Um, I was watching on YouTube. There's some great comments on that where someone's like, imagine if you were a cop who got called to like this like gang fight and you show up and this is going on. Well, it's weird too. Cause like they are just dance battling for like three fourths of it. But then there's like a couple of times where they slam each other for real up against cars. Mm-hmm. So like, I was like, what are the rules of this? Like when are you allowed to dance? When are you allowed to actually fight? Yeah. And I should say, too, like, I don't know if you picked up on this, Trev, but I found this, like, so, like, bizarre. Like, I wanted to, like, like know about it or or, or whatever. But there's, like, a couple of, you know, because they need music to dance, to do the dancing. There's, like, two or three times during the, the thing where they, they show, they do a, you know, an insert shot on the boom boxes. And on the, the one boom box, I think on the right speaker, I think it was, there's a sticker... That's like a promotional sticker for the first break-in movie. So the sticker has has a picture of like Boogaloo Shrimp kind of like going up on his toes. I think like a moonwalk or something. And it has the break-in logo on the sticker. <laughs> <laughs> I found that very, <laughs> very interesting inclusion into the film. So, so that's the thing. I think... I, I agree with you. I think there's no doubt that Breakin, the, the first film, is a much it's a, it's a much better movie. Yeah. I think in a group setting with some beers, Breakin Two is yeah. probably the more entertaining movie. So that's the yeah. thing. They they both have their strengths and they both have a value to them. But yeah, one's like a real movie, and then one is a like ha 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 look at this kind yeah. of thing. Cartoon like yeah. yeah. So yeah, like I just you know, I don't know like like like. Like it is a mixed bag, and it and it's not. It's like if you are looking for more of Breaking One to kind of continue on, like yeah, you're going to be disappointed. But if you if you can kind of come to it to terms with what Breaking Two is, you know what I mean. Like it's a lot of fun. And hey, you don't have to. I mean, you don't like maybe you won't agree with us. Uh, Roger Ebert famously did not like the first Breaking at all, and then loved Breaking Two. Did you yeah. know that? Did you ever read his review for Breaking Two? He like. He thought it was great. I didn't read it, but I saw during that that Zoom. There's a recent, I guess we should say there's a recent Zoom, like I don't know what you would call these Zoom calls, Zoom meetings, Zoom had, reunions. Yeah, yes. reunion had Lucinda, Shabadoo, um, uh, Boogaloo mm-hmm. Shrimp, Sam Furstenberg, and later on for a little bit, uh, Chris McDonald popped on, and like yeah, like um, which which by the way. Lucinda Dickey, she, I guess we should mention you. Like we keep painting this sad picture of like her. She's doing great, everybody. She she got married. She had kids. She kind of willfully retired. Uh, well, should we say like we we should just quickly? Well, let's. You want to talk about one last film, right? And then yeah. I I do want to say something about the way her career ended. But let's. Uh, well, yeah. no, we can say that now because it ties more into this. She she has made it clear that she had a um, she had like a six picture deal with Canon. 
And the next three were supposed to be that she was supposed to do another break in. And then she's supposed to be in like the Alan Quartermain films that they're making. Um, But after break in two failed, she basically says that she kind of had a falling out with Golan and Globus and they weren't really, you know, as friendly to her anymore. And they weren't speaking as much and they didn't, you know, they weren't going to make the break in three. And then they gave the role that they had told her she would have in the Quartermain films to um, Sharon Stone. Right. And so that's where that relationship dissolves. And that's that's really too bad. She does have one more significant role that I know you wanted to talk about briefly. Yeah, just just real quick. So to put this all into kind of time frame of her career, because we said she was in Greece, and then she was in these three films we discussed tonight. And all three of those, ironically, came out in 1984. And then her next movie wouldn't be until four years later. It would be a... Um, a I don't know how to describe this movie. It's a horror movie, but it, it's it's a comedy horror, like almost like a spoof called Cheerleader Camp. And I never like even really knew about this movie until we were getting ready to do this. So this this actually has a pretty killer cast. It has Betsy Russell, who's one of my favorite 80s actresses, uh, Leif Garrett, who was a musician and also a well-known actor, and of course Lucinda Dickey. Uh, George uh, Buck Flowers <laughs> <laughs> playing the character he plays in everything. Exactly, and uh, there there was also Terry Weigel was in it um, before she became a, a pornographic. Apparently, Terry Weigel. I didn't know about this. Like that name was familiar to me, but when I saw her saw her in the movie, I was like, oh yeah, I recognize this girl. I never knew like really what her story was. She was like a Playboy Playmate type person who then transitioned into movies, and then she got in a really horrific car accident. And um, uh, basically had medical bills that her and her husband could not pay for. And she had to go into a, um, you know, a, a hardcore, um, you know, adult actress, um, you know, a role or whatever. Uh, and then I think she's, I think she still does, like even all these years later, still does, uh, you know, uh, pornographic films or whatever. But yeah, anyway, so like this movie is like very weird. Um it's it's literally is what it says it is. It's it's these these people that, you know, the cast I just mentioned, they go to a cheerleader camp. And it's really weird cuz Betsy Russell like she keeps having these just constant delusionals uh, or what do you say um it just uh I'm blanking on the word to say she has uh what do you, what do you say, Trev? She has spells of imagining weird shit um mm-hmm. like delusions delusions yeah she has delusions and like basically she's always like and i think i should think this was kind of a cool idea that they didn't like whatever but basically uh develop much she's always like imagining that at first it's she's doing it to herself and then she's doing it to other people that she's always slashing people up with uh, a pair of pom-poms that have some kind of blades or razor blades in them so they go to cheerleader camp she's suffering from all these horrific nightmares and uh, delusions and stuff and um basically i guess hallucinations is what i was trying to say but basically like you just kind of run in and there's like there's like a fat guy heavy set guy who's very much like in the porky's mold <laughs> he's always running around like with a camcorder recording all the girls with their tops off and whatever and Lu- where Lucinda Dickey comes into play, she's actually not one of the cheerleaders. She's actually there. Like, they also invite the mascots from, I guess, all these local... And it was kind of nebulous. I couldn't tell if they were supposed to be high school or college age. I'm guessing more college age. But, yeah, she plays, like, this alligator mascot. She's, like, you know, they do all their drills, too. And, like, 
basically the whole movie, like, the comedy is, like, girls keep getting off one by one. You don't really know what's going on. Like, I would say it's kind of maybe in the same vein as Sleepaway Camp. And, like, to basically make a long story short is because uh, Betsy Russell has been having all these hallucinations that she's murdering people, even though she's not. Like, she basically gets framed up at the end. And, like, the very end shot of the movie is her being dragged away by the police. Uh uh, because, like, there's this whole scuffle where she accidentally shoots Leaf Garrett, thinking, basically, like, Lucinda Dickey leads her to believe that Leaf Garrett is the killer, so she shoots him, and then, like, uh, Lucinda Dickey basically just, like, sells her out to the cops, saying, yeah, she was crazy, she murdered everybody, and then we find out, like, as Betsy Russell's getting taken away, like, basically by the cops into the funny farm and whatever, like, then we see Lucinda Dickey's now dressed as a cheerleader, doing all the cheers and stuff, like, so it's basically, like, she was getting her revenge, because she was forced into being, like, the mascot, and, like, they, it's really hard, because, to watch if you're, you know, come, especially come out the breaking movies, because, like, you know, it's just the story of the movie, but, like, they really shit on uh, Lucinda Dickey, like, all throughout this movie, her and her character. They make it seem like she's ugly, and she's blah, and she's this, and she, she sucks at this thing, so that's why she has to be the mascot, and it's just, like, talk about the worst miscasting ever, but it's also... I it's true, I, but... It, oh, yeah, but I was gonna say, I mean, that's true, but at the same time, for this being, like, her last thing, it's kind of neat that, like, the last image is her winning, right? Oh, and, like, yeah. So no. our last like cinematic image of Lucinda Dickey is like, oh, she was the mastermind of all this. And then you get this cool moment where it's like, oh, she was behind it all. And now, you know, that cool thing of like, ah, the villain wins and it's her. Like, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. This is not what I would consider a good movie, may, mostly because it goes back and forth between the horror and comedy theme. And I think the comedy theme kind of like it has some really kind of grown roll your eyes bad comedy moments that kind of like spoil the movie like i think if this was done a little bit better i think this would be kind of like a minor classic like it kind of had some potential and like and i mean it's like this camp like there's tons of people there like it seemed pretty like a big budget film like it's it, you know I had to watch the shitty like youtube copy because it's not available on dvd or blu-ray or anything but if Vinegar Syndrome put this out, I would definitely buy it just because... Well, it definitely... So I was actually surprised you didn't know about this because it definitely used to be available because so I, I I I would say it's a little bit of a small call classic. I do have a DVD of it. There was an Anchor really? Bay special edition of it uh, years ago, which I have, which has a commentary and some other extras. Um, and that's because it was not even that was Lucinda Dickey that drew me, drew me to it, but um, I initially got it when, uh, you know, uh, getting back into Betsy Russell yeah. when she started showing up in the Saw films and being like, oh, yeah, Betsy Russell is great. And like then remembering that, you know, obviously I knew her more from private school and Avenging Angel, but then finding out about this one. And um, and that's why I like, yeah, I agree. It's not great. I think it's definitely a sleepaway camp kind of rip or whatever, but uh, yeah. I, I enjoy it well enough. And I, do, I and it's, it is because mostly because Lucinda and, and Betsy are both in it. And uh, just really quickly, Betsy Russell's another one where I feel like did not have the career she should have. And especially yeah. when it was weird when she, when the soft films brought her back and she was just amazingly gorgeous still. And yeah. I thought there was going to be like this cool, like resurgence of her. And I thought for sure she would get like that kind of, um, like what Barbara Crampton has now, not that she's Barbara Crampton, but I thought yeah. for sure you'd have more horror filmmakers putting her in stuff and it happened just a little bit, but then she went away again. I was like, Oh, that's a shame. I, I, I still want to see more of Betsy Russell. Yeah. I gotta say like, like I'm, I'm aging like a potato soaked in vodka or something. And I don't, <laughs> I don't know how these women do it. Lucinda Dickey's still beautiful. Betsy Russell is as, as beautiful as she was in the Saw films, whatever that was 10, 12 years ago at this point. 
because like I'm friends with her on Facebook. Like I see her recent pictures. She's even like she's maybe better looking now than ever. And I mean, looks. Yeah, she's compl- got that. She's got that like Julian Anderson syndrome where she just gets hotter as she gets older. Yeah, and, it, and I'm, I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know this from that. As far as I can tell, it's all natural beauty. So my hats off them so it's like yeah like i would love for vinegar syndrome to put this out because i would definitely buy it because them two are in it um and it's just one of those things it's like you kind of have to like roll your eyes and kind of sit through some bad parts but i mean there is some kind of legitimate cool parts of it yeah i didn't even know it came out on dvd because when i was searching for it dude like i couldn't find it anywhere like I, i didn't even see a picture of the dvd cover for some reason but like that's pretty much her 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 the end of her career uh literally the last thing she did two years after cheerleader camp was just uh, i guess a tv movie perry mason the case of the defiant uh daughter and she was uh un- like literally her her role was she was an employee and she was uncredited yeah. and i guess i should say too for cheerleader camp she also was she did the choreography so um i guess over the cheerleading parts or the dancing or whatever so i was always like um uh, curious if it was more like she was really just hired as a choreographer and then they threw her in or what. So, so this is what I want to say about her. And this, I don't want to, I don't mean to get like potentially dark or whatever. Um, because like I said, she does seem to be doing really well on the zoom call. You know, she, she has two kids. She's still married to this gentleman. She seems to be happy and everything. My only concern was when she, um, I was watching like the interview with her that's on the, um, the Ninja three Blu-ray. And she talks about how, like, after she made those canon films and, like, the deal kind of fell apart, as we said, she then started – she makes a point about how she's like, well, then I decided to go actually get trained in acting. Like, even though I'd already started, I feel like I'd now start taking this seriously. And then she kind of makes this point where she's like, but then, you know, I got married and um, I just kind of, like, walked away. And I was really – I don't know and I don't think she'd ever say because the, her husband is, like, a, a really successful reality TV producer. is one of, the, like, the creators of Survivor. Yeah. And I just always, whenever I hear stories like that, I really hope it's not the case where he was kind of like, hey, you don't really need this career, you know, like oh, yeah. I, I make tons of money and, um, and like, you know, I could see, like, I don't know, but I, you see this all the time where he's like, well, if you keep acting and dancing, that's going to put you around more men all the time. Maybe you should just stay home and like raise our family. And I, I just hope that's not the case. Like there's no reason for me to think it other than knowing other stories like that. Yeah. Um, I would just hate to think she she walked away from a career that she did want to try more with because she even she retired from acting and dancing, which is kind of surprising. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, I mean, she seems very content. She seems very happy. She lives mm-hmm. a very successful life. And um, if anything, you know, like especially as you get older, Trev, and you watch people you admire when you're younger, and you watch as their career progress like sometimes you're just as happy for their 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 private lives their personal oh, success yeah, and i think there is something to be said for lives people who do walk away from it because you also see the people who have it rougher and the business yeah. really takes something out of them and i do think it's nice to see the ones who actually get away and from what i've seen she still does do the occasional convention so she's still like she's not um, ashamed of any of this it seems like something she's still proud of and we should mention that um, if you take him at his word, there's a. Ch- it sounds like maybe we'll see her one more time, possibly, because um, in the Zoom call, Boogaloo Shrimp uh, talks about how. Oh no, sorry. Um, Shabadoo. Uh, Shabadoo talks about how he is apparently work trying to get a break in three made, and he does say that he basically would like the original cast to be a part of it. He, he makes it very clear that he does not. They wouldn't be the main characters. He yeah. basically says they would be there to pass the torch, but it sounds like he wants. All of them involved, including her. Now, I we've heard this so many times, like actors who are in cult films talking about how they're going to make like a new one, right? You yeah. just get so used to that. But in a Cobra Kai world, 
right. where that's actually happened. And he seems when he's talking about it, he seems pretty like he doesn't seem like someone who'd like bullshit you. And he I don't know. I, I, I kind of believed him when he was talking about how he's talking to some people who are very, you know, kind of into the idea. And it sounds like that they're actually getting kind of far with it just because I, I see this something you could make very cheap. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, probably just throw on a streaming service or something. So who knows? Maybe we'll get one more Lucinda Dickey as like the mom of like the new dancer or something in a in a break in reboot. Uh, uh, I wouldn't mind. I, I would like to see her one more time. She seems like somebody I'm surprised like. Well, I shouldn't say he can't use everybody, but she seems like someone who could have popped up in like a Tarantino movie or something. Oh, exactly. And, and like, yeah, like, and I have to say, too, like, like really shaming all the people who did the like the so many successful step up movies and they like never a cameo from Lucinda or Shabadoo or Boogaloo Shrimp. We should say, too, Boogaloo Shrimp was the cat that danced, the famous cat who danced with um, Paula Abdul. Uh, he was kind of like, the inspiration oh, did, like, I was, did they like film him and then animate over it is that what they did or pretty much uh he he yeah. he uh, according to what he said on the zoom call or whatever it was is, is like he he kind of uh choreographed the dance and then like i think they did film him because like they're, then they're then they put up a picture of a shot of him like in a suit like mm-hmm. not exactly what the cat was wearing but similar and he was like kind of on like on the same background they were on and he was like he was dancing in this pose, and it was like very clearly the same pose that the cat was doing. Oh, man, I didn't watch the entire Zoom call. Clearly, yeah. I missed out some good stuff. Yeah, finish it up when you get a chance. But uh, but yeah, man, like like I gotta say, you know, like I mean, obviously, I think the sadness is probably more on our end as fans that we didn't get to mm-hmm. see uh, Lucinda Dickey do more. And like, I mean, considering they were in half the movies that we talked about tonight like i obviously wish that we could have seen i mean they continued working in the dance field for sure but i wish we could have seen more uh on screen roles and stuff yeah particularly i actually wrote uh we and just really quickly when you talk about breaking two we were talking about the scene the um the kind of ugly racism scene at the parents dinner Mm. but i will say that sequence is also i specifically wrote my notes during that sequence um boogaloo shrimp needs a spinoff film because that scene in particular is where he's like very funny in that and that's where i was thinking like you said it's like well how do you not give this guy his own like kind of comedy vehicle and like they don't even really like milk the bit or anything but i love the scene where he's like taking the weird i don't even know what it is little squid thing or something out of the soup and he's trying to feed it to the cat (laughs) (laughs) so no but like i got i gotta say um yeah man especially especially with uh you know don't want to say too much about anything but especially with where we're at in our world right now to kind of especially with the first break-in movie uh to kind of get get like a you know a shot of like unbridled enthusiasm and positivity to get like a little mm-hmm. dose of that the you know recently uh watching this uh it was really nice and uh I listened to the commentary on Breaking Two, and I really wish there was a, a commentary for Breaking One, even if it just would have been like Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp. But but still, yeah, uh, very nice to revisit these movies, and like yeah, it, it would be amazing if they could get like a Breaking Three off the ground, especially now. I think there'd be so much you could like. It just would mean so much because the culture that like we saw in its infancy in the first Breaking film, like it's just like I said, it's literally just grown so much bigger through the decades. Mm-hmm. so yeah so i i think i think that's a, that's about it um we we, we really kind of uh, you know we really kind of stretched this one out and went in depth now oh. let's just hope we didn't doom lucinda dickie by doing this episode oh god i know i know you mentioned that to me and i was like oh damn um 
I wanted to just just real quick, uh, since you are an aficionado of comic books, Trev. Uh, do you have any comments on the Spider-Man sneaker controversy? Um, I don't know what that is, so no, I do not. Okay, real quick for the new Spider-Man game coming out on the next generation systems. I'm assuming this Christmas. There is a, uh, a a costume of Miles Morales, not exactly, but it's it's a loose tribute to what he what he wore in the Spider Verse film. Meaning, mm-hmm. it's a Spider Man suit with a pair of shorts, a jacket, mm-hmm. and a pair of sneakers on. And in the film, he he uh, the jacket and, and shorts are completely different too. And even the Spider Man suit he's wearing is completely different than the one he wore in the movie. But the biggest change, everybody like it, there's a real uproar going on, and like I think it's petitions are about to start now, but. Apparently there was like some payola when they made into the Spider Verse to have him wear a pair of Air Jordan ones. Now that payola has, you know, that was a couple years ago. The payola situation has changed, and uh, uh, or at least with the video game is now he's wearing a pair of Adidas, old school Adidas, and there is a huge uproar. And I gotta say, because I know you're a huge uh, comic book expert, because as we all know, you are a co-host of uh, Days of Future podcast, examining the X Men. I gotta say, like, isn't this kind of nitpicky, the shoes that he's wearing? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact, because my opinion on this is, uh, who gives a damn? Like, <laughs> that's, I, I don't care what sneakers uh, Miles Morales is wearing. I mean, they're still red sneakers. I mean, I'm sure in the game he's going to be running and jumping so fast, you're not even going to, it's going to be a blur. Well, as you said, that just comes from the movie. Like, the, that's not the costume he wears in the comics. That's just, yeah. like, a cool visual they came up with for the movie, which I do really like because it does give him more of, like, this, like, street look, you know, which I think yeah. is, like, appropriate to, to that character, especially to separate him more from, you know, the Peter Parker version. But, but yeah, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to be... I don't think I'd ever play a video game and be that aware of whether my character is wearing Adidas or, or Nike. So. It's it, it's insane the uproar that's popped up in the last week. I mean, it's extremely. And also, there was another uproar because um, they're also re-releasing the previous Spider-Man game that came out two years ago. They're re-releasing it in like a upgraded format for the new game systems. Mm-hmm. And they, and I guess because they were like transferring the whatever you call it, the digital assets over, they chose while they were remastering it to make it like the characters higher quality facially, I guess they chose to recast the actor who's playing Peter Parker to somebody who looks actually more like Tom Holland now. And people are mad because they don't want the video game Spider-Man to look exactly like Tom Holland. So (laughs) I don't know. I feel like Spider-Man fandom is uh... Going to tear itself apart over these yeah. tiny trivia. No, this is like every fandom is being torn apart right now, right? It's yeah. just uh, you got to avoid them all at this point. So, speech, speaking of examining the X Men, I mean, have you guys, do you feel like, have you lost your purpose or has it been a, a, a weight off your shoulders since New, Mut- New Mutants was finally released? I mean, I'm I'm glad to not have to keep talking about New Mutants anymore. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the bummer of it was finally getting to it and realizing that that's the movie we were waiting all this time for it was uh you know it's a real nothing film but um but yeah just like the what was first funny really did kind of become like an albatross of being like having to keep talking about these shifting release dates and everything i'm I'm glad to be done with it it puts us in a unique position of this is the first time in a long time we have nothing to talk about media wise with the x-men um but I think we're, our plan right now is to spend the next few months really looking at some uh, kind of doing some deep dives into uh, unique and unknown X-Men miniseries and oddities. Um, you know, I found a comic that was made to use the X-Men to teach kids about stranger danger. We, we're not going to do an wow. episode about that. 
Um, there's a, a comic series called X-Men Noir, which actually takes the X-Men characters and throws them in a, in a 1940s noir detective story. Uh, so I think that's that might be kind of fun for us for a while to kind of look at some more um, of the strange moments in X-Men comic history until finally, you know, we start getting some news on them in the MCU or whatever. But but yeah, I don't know. For for now, we'll just we'll we'll deal more in the realm of the comics, and maybe we'll finally start looking back at the uh, the '90s cartoon or something. So, yeah, I didn't get a chance to listen to it, but just today I downloaded your guys' episode where you went into the. You know, I didn't even know he made this, but the 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 I guess what you, I don't even know what you call them anymore. Mini series, limited issue series that Robert Kirkman did, where he just yeah. did it all about Jubilee. Yeah, Robert Kirkman did a, did a Jubilee mini series, which uh, I, I was not aware of either. But that was uh, Joe loves Jubilee, and I was trying to cheer him up after watching New Mutants, so I allowed him to do that as an episode. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Like, I'm kind of a closet Jubilee fan too, and I was kind of like all about about it when she finally popped up in a small role in the movie. Uh, franchise and uh really well i mean you know like uh, not the only one but that's a character that was very much done dirty in the in the fox films yeah i mean completely like uh i don't know what you call it uh miniaturized isn't the right word but underutilized yeah underutilized yeah and then uh thankfully there's hundreds and hundreds of episodes of days of future podcasts out there and uh, i'm getting caught up um i'm I'm not caught up with all the episodes, but I'm pretty much caught up with with majority of this year. The stuff that you guys okay, talk about I'm this not year. Not holding you to it. That's no problem. But 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 another one that's maybe because it doesn't have that vast catalog that I'm up to date with. I'm 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 telling you, man. I'm pulling out my fingernails here. This wait is uh, every two weeks, man. This wait is excruciating for a new episode of uh, Failure to Franchise, the hottest new podcast of 2020. Thank you. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with it, and uh, we're I'm starting to we're starting to think about how to maybe um, in in 2021 um, not necessarily go weekly, but try and uh, maybe every other month or maybe every month do like a, a bonus episode that would be looking at a failed TV pilot, um, or you know even do um, special episodes that are us talking about sequels that we like or didn't work, or you know um, just breaking away from the, the overall format for a little bit. But uh, thanks since since you brought it up, thank you. Like that is a show where me and my co-host Chris every episode look at a film that was meant to start a film franchise and for whatever reason didn't. So whether it was a box office failure or just it was the wrong time, um, they could never agree on what the script for the next one. Whatever the case, we we examine those and and kind of break it down, talk about our thoughts in the film, and then talk about why the sequel never happened. And that's been a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying that show, and I'm glad uh, people seem to be liking it. Yeah, like like I always see it getting a great response on both Instagram and Facebook, and I like I I love it just because like I told you like even I think even maybe before you even recorded the first episode, just when you told the premise, I was like, holy shit, that's a great idea, and. Uh, I'm I'm glad I'm glad it's a I'm glad it's an idea I never had and I'm glad you guys did it the way you did it because like it's one thing to examine um you know and 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 you know like let's be frank like it's it's not a show about failure movies like some of these movies did very well at the box mm-hmm. office like uh recently you covered the Friday the 13th remake made a made a really good profit but mm-hmm. there was underlying and like that's what I love you guys peel back the layers of the onion you guys you know in certain cases you really get into the behind the scenes of production, the, you know, the different rights issues with studios and whatnot. And like, I just think it's great. You know, when like, I, when I pitched the show to Chris, um, I did not think 
it would be a show that would end up uh, as research heavy as it's become. <laughs> but we really do. Like uh, we have a uh, a document that we keep, and uh, when every film we're doing, Chris and I both find various articles and share them with each other, and we read a lot about all this stuff before we record the episode and take. Uh, extensive notes you know you've heard I, I write these introduction pieces so yeah it's it's more research heavy than I thought but it's been a lot of fun um, for, for that reason just um, sometimes thinking I think a lot of the movies we do there's just this general sense like even a film like Waterworld where people just hear that and go like oh giant bomb right and it's like no 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 not exactly like it, it turned a profit it's just you know and there's just other things here so yeah, yeah it's, it's fun to kind of look at that and, and figure out what what happened yeah, I love it. It's always got me on the edge of the seat, you know, as soon as it ends, like, literally, like, I wish I could start another episode, but I can't, because, you know, I started listening when the show came out, but, um, yeah, thank you so much, Trev, just, just, hey, can more... I, can I throw in one last, um, plug for something? This is more yeah, for, not just for listeners, it. but for, but for you, go, and I really wanted to recommend something, but I wanted to do it on the air in case anyone else is interested. Um, I know it's not really Halloween season anymore, but go, I think this is definitely going to perk your ears. I am currently reading... The Living Dead, which is the novel that George Romero was writing when he unfortunately passed. And um, it was taken up by uh, uh, Daniel Krauss, who is an author I really like as well, who co-wrote Shape of Water with Guillermo del Toro and has written some great books like um, Rodgers and uh, a couple other, um, you know, kind of mystery and horror novels. And uh, George Romero's uh, wife brought the book to him, like what, what was finished, and said, could you take a look at this? And finish it. And I've watched some interviews with him. And, and to Krauss's credit, he really went all in on it. He did months of research on Romero first. He um, he got all of Romero's notes that he'd written about the book. And then he watched every Romero film, not just the Living Dead films. He went to the archives and read um, the unproduced Romero scripts. He was just trying to pull from anything that he felt would get him into Romero's mindset so he could properly finish this novel. And this is a novel that uh, basically is another retelling of the the Living Dead story. It does take place. It starts in October 2020, and that is presented as the first night. And then you're basically tracking uh, the first part of the book is tracking these different characters and how they're responding to the initial outbreak of the of the zombie apocalypse. And as I understand it, I'm only about halfway through, but eventually there's a time jump, and this book covers kind of like the gamut of giving you Night of the Living Dead and then like the Dawn of the Dead period and the Day of the Dead period. It's very long. It's over 600 pages. It's definitely like a, a brick of a book. But man, <laughs> I am I am loving it. And I go. I don't know how much you get a, you get time to read, but as a as a I know you as a diehard Romero fan, um, I, I really think you should check this out. I think I'm only halfway through, and I already think it's a a better statement on the Living Dead than um, the last two films he made. It really is feeling like I'm really happy we have this as kind of his his final statement. Um, and it's actually this is the impressive thing. I will say uh, there's been some times reading it at night where I've actually felt a little scared. Like, I think it's actually wow. got some real tension to it. And I was like, man, this is this is damn good. And, uh, you know, and reading it, obviously, I don't know what of it is Romero, what of it is Krauss. But I think Krauss is doing a good job capturing that voice. And, uh, yeah, it's just cool to be able to spend one last kind of go at this with, with George. So definitely check that out if you can. Dude, that's awesome. Of course, always on this show or any show I'm on, I'm going to tell you Romero rocks. But yeah, like like I knew about that project, but I didn't realize. I don't say I didn't even realize it was finished till I saw a picture of somebody who always does Romero stuff uh, talking about they got their copy or whatever. But I didn't realize like, uh, man, I didn't realize such an A-lister guy. Like I knew I knew there was a, a author who stepped in to help finish up the project, but I didn't realize such a hardcore A-lister guy. That's awesome. That actually. Actually puts the project in a whole new light for me. Yeah, and not only that, but like I said, um, you should go take a look. Like bef- maybe before you read it, or even when you start reading it, um, go watch some of the interviews he's done about it because I think you'll you'll be really happy with 
the love he has for it and how seriously he took it and just the amount of work he put into it. Like I said, he, um, you know, I was reading like his little afterward and, um, and some stuff he's written and he found out that there was like a, an initial attempt to do this where I guess, I don't know if you know about this, but like back in like the early two thousands, Romero was writing a novel called the death of death. And he was doing it as a, um, he was writing a chapter a week, but it was on a site where you had to pay to read each chapter. I do. And I remember he, when that was going on actually. Yeah, and he, I never and he gave, like he read gave it. up after like two chapters and then that site wasn't archived and Krauss is like, I want to read this. I want to make sure there's like, well, what if that's got like an interesting idea in it? So he like put the work in to like find those chapters and it's just like, okay, that's cool that he really took this seriously and took the responsibility seriously. And, and, uh, you know, was able to kind of um, help finish this this project because it would have been a shame if that just sat there, you know, unfinished. So, dude, that's yeah, awesome. What was the name of, of it again? Just just to put it out there for people. It is just called The Living Dead. Okay, that's what I thought. The Living Dead. So yeah, man. So I just want to, uh, you know, before we sign off here, I want to peel the curtain back once again and uh, thank Trev for not only coming to do the episode, but for having the the concept for the episode. It took me a little while to uh, get all these flicks. Why I had to procure some copies, and then I had a, you know, not so much a time crunch as much as I had uh, recently. I just had a, a attention deficit problem where I couldn't really focus on a lot of shit. So uh, I'm, I've Trev, thank you for not only doing the episode but being patient with me as I, no, you no. know, made my way through it. And uh, before we sign off here, we have we do uh, have a new policy here on the Movie Graveyard, Trev. We do have to mention uh, Eddie Furlong at least once every episode. So if you don't mind, real quick, could I ask you, what's your favorite Edward Furlong film uh, besides Terminator 2? Uh, Dark Reel. Uh, he made a movie called Dark Reel that stars him and my girl Tiffany Shepis, who you know I'm a, I'm a huge fan of and uh, know a little bit. Um, that's I obviously came to the film through her, but... It is uh, kind of this like crazy B horror movie um, starring the two of them. Um, very fun, uh, very you know, kind of one of those more like I'm gonna say silly. It's not that the movie is trying to be silly, but you know what I mean. Like it's just yeah. it's not super serious, but Tongue I, in I, cheek. I yeah, I, it, it's just it's a good time. But I, I I do actually enjoy that movie. You know. Um, diving into tiffany's filmography she'll be the first to tell you they're not all winners <laughs> and uh <laughs> there's but there's a few i legitimately end up enjoying and, and i'm willing to revisit and and dark reel is is one of those um so and i believe she had a good time working with edward i think i've seen her you know still talk about him occasionally or when they're at conventions together she seems excited to see him so very nice yeah that uh, that's another furlong classic i want to have to to put on the list to see I, I watched the first half last night i just had to get to bed i don't want to finish it tonight but i'm currently making my way through uh jimmy and judy very interesting film ever furlong it's almost like uh it's like a found footage movie but furlong is like behind the camera and like him and his girlfriend and it was actually shot around where i went to college and i recognize a lot of the areas where they're at and stuff so it's pretty cool i'm enjoying mm-hmm. that one it's it, you know it's a little test of a patience because it's it's they don't say it's a found footage movie but it, it literally is just everything is just this camcorder footage but um, I'm actually kind of impressed with some of Furlong's acting. He plays a very kind of... No, no, he's certainly good. Like, I mean, because I, when you ask that question, like, I want to always give a shout out to those kind of films where I want to bring more attention to them. I mean, the real answer to that question is probably Pecker, um, which I yeah. think is, you know, and I, but that, that's, that's a film that shows that he had some, he had some talent, you know, he, he, he was, well, he was good. Well, yeah, I always remind people when they kind of laugh about it. I mean, obviously it was more his personal uh, demons mm-hmm. kind of hurt his career, but I always remind people he was good enough that he literally, you know, was a main character in a film starring Meryl Streep and Liam Neeson. So, yeah. I mean, that speaks for itself right there. 
Yeah, he's good in American History X. And oh, yeah. great! Yeah, and I, I, this is another little gem. A lot of people haven't seen. Trev, have you ever got a chance to check out Little Odessa with him and Tim Roth? No, I, I don't. I mean, I know of it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely quality. Good, good little art house flick. I like. I mean, obviously, a completely different storyline, but in terms of like, you know, the the quality of character he plays, uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's kind of like on the level. I'd say a little bit of you know, in the same vein of American History X, and and there's one with Jeff Bridges that I always forget about, and I've recorded it off cable a bunch of times, and I always miss it. But yeah, uh, I think that it was the one he did right after Terminator 2. But yeah, Eddie Furlong, he's got some good flicks out there, people. Check him out if you get a chance. But uh, Trev, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this supersize episode. Obviously, I implore everybody to listen to your shows as well. Uh, yeah, we, like between the two of us and then our other pretty much at this point regular co-host Zach and all his podcasts, I feel like the three of us, we got people covered on podcasts. You don't need to go anywhere else. That's right. Yeah. What are you going to listen to? Joe Rogan and Mark Marin? Give me a break. Same stuff every week. Yeah. You're going to listen to Joe Rogan for free on Spotify? Come on. Tell you not to wear a mask during a pandemic? Come on. <laughs> exactly. You don't need that malarkey. You need to get them hot uh, Edward Furlong classic flick recommendations right here. Trev, thanks again. And all you guys, thank you for listening as always. And we'll catch you next time right here in the movie graveyard. You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows, visit electronicmediacollective.com.